0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Abraham Lincoln on the Subject of Taxation in Order to Fund a Government To the People of Illinois, 1843. The system of loans is but temporary in its nature, and must soon explode. It is a system not only ruinous while it lasts, but one that must soon fail and leave us destitute. As an individual who undertakes to live by borrowing soon finds his original means devoured by interest, and next no one left to borrow from, so must it be with a government. We repeat, then, that a tariff sufficient for revenue— or a direct tax, must soon be resorted to, and indeed we believe this alternative is now denied by no one. But which system shall be adopted? Some of our opponents in theory admit the propriety of a tariff sufficient for revenue, but even they will not in practice vote for such a tariff, while others boldly advocate direct taxation. Inasmuch, therefore, as some of them boldly advocate direct taxation and all the rest, or so nearly all as to make exceptions needless, refuse to adopt the tariff. We think it is doing them no injustice to class them all as advocates of direct taxation. Indeed, we believe they are only delaying an open avowal of the system till they can assure themselves that the people will tolerate it. Let us, then, briefly compare the two systems. The tariff is the cheaper system. BECAUSE THE DUTIES, BEING COLLECTED IN LARGE PARCELS, AT A FEW COMMERCIAL POINTS, WILL REQUIRE COMPARATIVELY FEW OFFICERS IN THEIR COLLECTION, WHILE BY THE DIRECT TAX SYSTEM THE LAND MUST BE LITERALLY COVERED WITH ASSESSORS AND COLLECTORS, GOING FORTH LIKE SWARMS OF EGYPTIAN LOCUSTS, DEVOURING EVERY BLADE OF GRASS AND OTHER GREEN THING. AND, AGAIN, BY THE tariff SYSTEM THE WHOLE REVENUE IS PAID BY THE CONSUMERS OF FOREIGN GOODS, and those chiefly the luxuries, and not the necessaries of life. By this system the man who contents himself to live upon the products of his own country pays nothing at all. And surely that country is extensive enough, and its products abundant and varied enough, to answer all the real wants of its people. In short, by this system the burden of revenue falls almost entirely on the wealthy and luxurious few while the substantial and laboring many who live at home and upon home products go entirely free by the direct tax system none can escape however strictly the citizen may exclude from his premises all foreign luxuries fine cloths fine silks rich wines golden chains and diamond rings still for the possession of his house his barn and his homespun he is to be perpetually haunted and harassed by the tax-gatherer. With these views, we leave it to be determined whether we or our opponents are more truly democratic on the subject. End of speech. This recording is in the public domain.
1: all is not gold that glitters from vanity fair march 28 1861 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org all is not gold that glitters the city has been afflicted for a short time by a curious eruption breaking out of jewelry stores with large placards in their windows inscribed take your choice for one dollar it is all very well to tell a fellow to take his choice but there is in these windows nothing choice to take why should we or any man be anxious to possess various small fragments of brass stamped in fantastic forms and of no value except to the loser these storekeepers announce their wares at rare bargains but we believe We know, in fact, that this sort of bargain is greatly overdone. Spitenteifel, who is inclined to be metaphysical, says that the affair is based on a philosophical principle. Every man thinks that there are a few good articles and a great many bad ones in these one-dollar jewelry mills, and every man also thinks that he is shrewd enough to pick out the thing upon which the dealer makes no profit. Every man rushes in, then planks down his dollar and carries off a, what is it, a connecting link between brass and copper. It is suggested, however, that there is some gold in the rings, pins, brooches, lockets, pencil cases, etc., etc., of the one dollar shops. Oreide, the composition of which they are made, is said to give off, in vapor, when assayed, a faintly infinitesimal quantity of gold. That which remains is infinitesimally less. We know of a young lady to whom some gentleman, more benevolent than judicious, presented a chain, bought as a rare bargain for one dollar. The maiden, having no rooted antipathy to ornaments of any kind, twined the chain about her neck. At night, when making her toilette de nuit, she observed a dark, lead-colored ring about her snowy and swan-like throat, reminding her of Elsie Venner and some more of a young woman mentioned on page 55 of Aldrich's last volumes of poems who had, quote, a dark blue scar on her throat, unquote. The next day, this young lady of the chain told a friend that the gold had been polished with whiting or something that blackened her neck. She was duly surprised to learn that it was only brass, and thundering poor brass at that. The $1 jewels are, in fact, much inferior to the average of decent bell pulls. The result of this explosion of jewelry is painful. Of course, it plays the dickens with the legitimate business, and the consequence is that all the respectable stores have to inaugurate a $1 department in which they sell as bad jewelry as anybody. The metropolis is inundated with it. The east side absolutely gleams, glitters, glows, glares, shines, shimmers, and scintillates with it. Every bookbinderess and prentice boy possesses a mass of trinkets that, in size and number at least, rival the crown jewels of many a kingdom. And they tell us that the country, the far and pleasing agricultural districts, swarm with similar shops. Woe! Woe to the Arcadian loiterer of the coming summer! Amaryllis will shine in tawdry bracelets, and Daphnis will sport a hideous locket. A monstrous mosaic will rise and fall upon the bosom of Phyllis, and the sheep will gaze in wonder upon the gorgeous guard-chain of their formosum pastor, Coridon. But when the summer has come and gone, when the moist air and earthy exhalations of the country shall have done their work, Amaryllis will look with disgust upon a pile of greenish and odorous things, stained and blackened by vertigree, AND SAY WITH A REGRETFUL VOICE, THESE ARE MY JEWELS. END OF ALL IS NOT GOLD THAT GLITTERS READ BY LEANNE HOWLETT
2: THE AWFUL GERMAN LANGUAGE BY MARK Twain. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Little Learning Makes the Whole World Kin Proverbs 32, 7 I went often to look at the collection of curiosities in Heidelberg Castle, and one day I surprised the keeper of it with my German. I spoke entirely in that language. He was greatly interested, and after I had talked a while he said my German was very rare possibly unique, and wanted to add it to his museum. If he had known what it had cost me to acquire my art, he would also have known that it would break any collector to buy it. Harris and I had been hard at work on our German during several weeks at that time, and although we had made good progress, it had been accomplished under great difficulty and annoyance, for three of our teachers had died in the meantime. A person who has not studied German can form no idea of what a perplexing language it is. Surely there is not another language that is so slipshod and systemless, and so slippery and elusive to the grasp. One is washed about in it, hither and thither, in the most helpless way. And when at last he thinks he has captured a rule which offers firm ground to take a rest on, amid the general rage and turmoil of the ten parts of speech, he turns over the page and reads let the pupil make careful note of the following exceptions. He runs his eye down and finds that there are more exceptions to the rule than instances of it. So overboard he goes again to hunt for another Ararat and find another quicksand. Such has been and continues to be my experience. Every time I think I have got one of these four confusing cases where I am the master of it, a seemingly insignificant preposition intrudes itself into my sentence, clothed with an awful and unsuspecting power, and crumbles the ground from under me. For instance, my book inquires after a certain bird. It is always inquiring after things which are no sort of consequence to anybody. Where is the bird? Now the answer to this question, according to the book, is that the bird is waiting in the blacksmith shop on account of the rain. Of course, no bird would do that, but then you must stick to the book. Very well, I begin to cipher out the German for that answer. I begin at the wrong end, necessarily, for that is the German idea. I say to myself, Regen, rain, is masculine. Or maybe it is feminine, or possibly neuter. It is too much trouble to look now. Therefore, it is either der, the, Regen, or die, the, Regen, or das, the, Regen according to which gender it may turn out to be when I look. In the interest of science, I will cipher it out on the hypothesis that it is masculine. Very well, then the rain is der Regen, if it is simply in the quiescent state of being mentioned, without enlargement or discussion, nominative case. But if this rain is lying around in a kind of general way on the ground, then it is definitely located it is doing something, that is, resting, which is one of the German grammar's ideas of doing something. And this throws the rain into the dative case and makes it dem regen. However, this rain is not resting, but is doing something actively, it is falling, to interfere with the bird likely. And this indicates movement, which has the effect of sliding it into the accusative case and changing dem regen into den regen. Having completed the grammatical horoscope of this matter, I answer up confidently and state in the German that the bird is staying in the blacksmith's shop wegen on account of den Regen. Then the teacher lets me softly down with the remark that whenever the word wegen drops into a sentence, it always throws that subject into the genitive case, regardless of consequences, and that therefore this bird stayed in the blacksmith's shop, Wegen des Regens. Notabene bene, I was informed later by a higher authority that there was an exception which permits one to say Wegen den Regen in certain peculiar and complex circumstances, but that this exception is not extended to anything but rain. There are ten parts of speech, and they are all troublesome. An average sentence in a German newspaper is a sublime and impressive curiosity. It occupies a quarter of a column. It contains all the 10 parts of speech, not in regular order, but mixed. It is built mainly of compound words constructed by the writer on the spot and not to be found in any dictionary, six or seven words compacted into one without joint or seam, that is, without hyphens. It treats of 14 or 15 different subjects each enclosed in a parenthesis of its own. And here and there are extra parentheses which re-enclose three or four of the minor parentheses, making pens within pens. Finally, all the parentheses and reparentheses are massed together between a couple of king parentheses, one of which is placed in the first line of the majestic sentence and the other in the middle of the last line of it, after which comes the verb. And you find out for the first time what the man has been talking about. And after the verb, merely by way of ornament, as far as I can make out, the writer shovels in, Haben sind gewesen gehabt, Haben geworden sein, or words to that effect, and the monument is finished. I suppose that this closing hurrah is in the nature of the flourish to a man's signature. Not necessary, but pretty. German books are easy enough to read when you hold them before the looking-glass or stand on your head, so as to reverse the construction. But I think that to learn to read and understand a German newspaper is a thing which must always remain an impossibility to a foreigner. Yet even the German books are not entirely free from attacks of the parenthesis distemper, though they are usually so mild as to cover only a few lines, And therefore, when you at last get down to the verb, it carries some meaning to your mind because you are able to remember a good deal of what has gone before. Now here is a sentence from a popular and excellent German novel, which has a slight parenthesis in it. I will make a perfectly literal translation and throw in the parenthesis marks and some hyphens for the assistance of the reader, Though in the original, there are no parenthesis marks or hyphens, and the reader is left to flounder through to the remote verb the best way he can. But when he, upon the street, the, parenthesis, in satin and silk covered now very unconstrained after the newest fashion dressed, parenthesis, government counsellor's wife met, etc., etc. Note, in the German, this is, Wenn er aber auf der Straße der in Samt und Seide gehüllten, jetzt sehr ungeniert nach der neuesten Mode gekleideten Regierungsrätin begegnet. That is from The Old Manse's Secret by Mrs. Marley, and that sentence is constructed upon the most approved German model. You observe how far that verb is from the reader's base of operations. Well, in a German newspaper, they put their verb away over on the next page, and I have heard that sometimes, after stringing along the exciting preliminaries and parentheses for a column or two, they get in a hurry, and have to go to press without getting to the verb at all. Of course, then, the reader is left in a very exhausted and ignorant state. We have the parenthesis disease in our literature, too, and one may see cases of it every day in our books and newspapers, but with us it is the mark and sign of an unpractised writer or a cloudy intellect, whereas with the Germans it is doubtless the mark and sign of a practiced pen, and of the presence of that sort of luminous intellectual fog which stands for clearness among these people. For surely it is not clearness. It necessarily can't be clearness. Even a jury would have penetration enough to discover that, A writer's ideas must be a good deal confused, a good deal out of line and sequence, when he starts out to say that a man met a counselor's wife in the street, and then right in the midst of this so simple undertaking halts these approaching people and makes them stand still until he jots down an inventory of the woman's dress. That is manifestly absurd. It reminds a person of those dentists who secure your instant and breathless interest in a tooth by taking a grip on it with the forceps and then stand there and draw through a tedious anecdote before they give the dreaded jerk. Parentheses in literature and dentistry are in bad taste. The Germans have another kind of parenthesis, which they make by splitting a verb in two, and putting half of it at the beginning of an exciting chapter, and the other half at the end of it. Can anyone conceive of anything more confusing than that? These things are called separable verbs. The German grammar is blistered all over with separable verbs, and the wider the two portions of one of them are spread apart, the better the author of the crime is pleased with his performance. A favorite one is Reiste ab, which means departed. Here is an example which I called from a novel and reduced to English. The trunks being now ready, he d. After kissing his mother and sisters, and once more pressing to his bosom his adored Gretchen, who, dressed in simple white muslin, with a single tuberose in the ample folds of her rich brown hair, had tottered feebly down the stairs, still pale from the terror and excitement of the past evening, but longing to lay her poor aching head yet once again upon the breast of him whom she loved more dearly than life itself, parted. However, it is not well to dwell too much on the separable verbs one is sure to lose his temper early and if he sticks to the subject and will not be warned it will be at last either soften his brain or petrify it personal pronouns and adjectives are a fruitful nuisance in this language and should be left out for instance the same sound z means you and it means she and it means her and it means it and it means they and it also means them Think of the ragged poverty of a language which has to make one word do the work of six, and a poor little weak thing of only three letters at that. But mainly, think of the exasperation of never knowing which of these meanings the speaker is trying to convey. This explains why, whenever a person says Z to me, I generally try to kill him, if a stranger. Now observe the adjective. Here was a case where simplicity would have been an advantage— Therefore, for no other reason, the inventor of this language complicated it all he could. When we wish to speak of our good friend or friends in our enlightened tongue, we stick to the one form and have no trouble or hard feeling about it. But with the German tongue, it is different. When a German gets his hands on an adjective, he declines it, and keeps on declining it until the common sense is all declined out of it. It is as bad as Latin. He says, for instance, singular, nominative, mein guter Freund, my good friend, genitive, meines guten Freundes, of my good friend, dative, meinem guten Freund, to my good friend, accusative, meinen guten Freund, my good friend, plural, nominative, meine guten Freunde, my good friends. Genitive, meiner guten Freunde, of my good friends. Dative, meinen guten Freunden, to my good friends. Accusative, meine guten Freunde, my good friends. Now let the candidate for the asylum try to memorize those variations and see how soon he will be elected. One might better go without friends in Germany than take all this trouble about them. I have shown what a bother it is to decline a good male friend. Well, this is only a third of the work, for there is a variety of new distortions of the adjective to be learned when the object is feminine, and still another when the object is neuter. Now, there are more adjectives in this language than there are black cats in Switzerland, and they must all be as elaborately declined as the examples above suggested. Difficult? Troublesome? These words cannot describe it. I heard a Californian student in Heidelberg say, in one of his calmest moods, that he would rather decline two drinks than one German adjective. The inventor of the language seems to have taken pleasure in complicating it in every way he could think of. For instance, if one is casually referring to a house, haus, or a horse, pferd, or a dog, hund, he spells these words as I have indicated. But if he is referring to them in the dative case, he sticks on a foolish and unnecessary e, and spells them hause, pferde, hunde. So, as an added e often signifies the plural, as the s does with us, the new student is likely to go on for a month making twins out of a dative dog before he discovers his mistake. And, on the other hand, many a new student who could ill afford loss has bought and paid for two dogs and only got one of them, because he ignorantly bought that dog in the dative singular when he really supposed he was talking plural, which left the law on the seller's side, of course, by the strict rules of grammar, and therefore a suit for recovery could not lie. In German, all the nouns begin with a capital letter. Now that is a good idea and a good idea in this language is necessarily conspicuous from its lonesomeness. I consider this capitalizing of nouns a good idea, because by reason of it, you are almost always able to tell a noun the minute you see it. You fall into error occasionally, because you mistake the name of a person for the name of a thing, and waste a good deal of time trying to dig a meaning out of it. German names almost always do mean something, and this helps to deceive the student. I translated a passage one day, which said that the infuriated tigress broke loose and utterly ate up the unfortunate fir forest, Tannenwald. While I was girding up my loins to doubt this, I found out that Tannenwald, in this instance, was a man's name. Every noun has a gender, and there is no sense or system in the distribution, so the gender of each must be learned separately, and by heart. There is no other way. To do this, one has to have a memory like a memorandum book. In German, a young lady has no sex, while a turnip has. Think what overwrought reverence that shows for the turnip, and what callous disrespect for the girl. See how it looks in print. I translate this from a conversation in one of the best of the German Sunday school books. Gretchen. Wilhelm, where is the turnip? Wilhelm she has gone to the kitchen. Gretchen, where is the accomplished and beautiful English maiden? Wilhelm, it has gone to the opera. To continue with the German genders, a tree is male, its buds are female, its leaves are neuter, horses are sexless, dogs are male, cats are female, tomcats included, of course. A person's mouth, neck, bosom, elbows fingers nails feet and body are of the male sex and his head is either male or neuter according to the word selected to signify it and not according to the sex of the individual who wears it for in germany all of the women have either male heads or sexless ones a person's nose lips shoulders breast hands and toes are of the female sex and his hair ears eyes chin legs knees heart and conscience haven't any sex at all. The inventor of the language probably got what he knew about a conscience from hearsay. Now, by the above dissection, the reader will see that in Germany a man may think he is a man, but when he comes to look into the matter closely, he is bound to have his doubts. He finds that, in sober truth, he is a most ridiculous mixture, and if he ends by trying to comfort himself with the thought that he can at least depend on a third of this mess, as being manly and masculine, the humiliating second thought will quickly remind him that in this respect he is no better off than any woman or cow in the land. In the German it is true that by some oversight of the inventor of the language, a woman is female, but a wife, weib, is not, which is unfortunate. A wife here has no sex, she is neuter. So, according to the grammar, a fish is he, his scales are she, but a fishwife is neither. To describe a wife as sexless may be called under description. That is bad enough, but over description is surely worse. A German speaks of an Englishman as the Englinder. To change the sex, he adds in, and that stands for Englishwoman. Englinderin. That seems descriptive enough, but still it is not exact enough for a German. So he precedes the word with that article, which indicates that the creature to follow is feminine, and writes it down thus, Die Engländerin, which means the she Englishwoman. I consider that that person is over-described. Well, after the student has learned the sex of a great number of nouns, he is still in a difficulty, because he finds it impossible to persuade his tongue to refer to things as he and she and him and her, which it has been always accustomed to refer to as it. When he even frames a German sentence in his mind, with the hymns and hers in the right places, and then works up his courage to the utterance point, it is no use. The moment he begins to speak, his tongue flies the track, and all of those labored males and females come out as its. And even when he is reading German to himself, he always calls those things it, whereas he ought to read it in this way. THE TALE OF THE FISHWIFE AND ITS SAD FATE NOTE I CAPITALIZE THE NOUNS IN THE GERMAN AND ANCIENT ENGLISH FASHION IT IS A BLEAK DAY HEAR THE RAIN HOW HE POURS AND THE HAIL HOW HE RATTLES AND SEE THE SNOW HOW HE DRIFTS ALONG AND OF THE MUD HOW DEEP HE IS AH THE POOR FISHWIFE IT IS STUCK FAST IN THE MIRE IT HAS DROPPED ITS BASKET OF FISHES and its hands have been cut by the scales, as it seized some of the falling creatures. And one scale has even got into its eye, and it cannot get her out. It opens its mouth to cry for help, but if any sound comes out of him, alas, he is drowned by the raging of the storm. And now a tomcat has got one of the fishes, and she will surely escape with him. No, she bites off a fin. She holds her in her mouth. Will she swallow her? No, the fishwife's brave mother dog deserts his puppies and rescues the fin, which he eats himself as his reward. Oh, horror! The lightning has struck the fish basket. He sets him on fire. See the flame, how she licks the doomed utensil with her red and angry tongue. Now she attacks the helpless fishwife's foot. She burns him up, all but the big toe, and even she is partly consumed, and she still spreads. Still she waves her fiery tongues. She attacks the fishwife's leg and destroys it. She attacks its hand and destroys her also. She attacks the fishwife's leg and destroys her also. She attacks its body and consumes him. She wreathes herself about its heart and it is consumed. Next about its breast. And in a moment she is a cinder. Now she reaches its neck. He goes. Now its chin. It goes. Now its nose. She goes. In another moment, except help come, the fishwife will be no more. Time presses. Is there none to succor and save? Yes. Joy, joy, with flying feet, the she-English woman comes. But alas, the generous she-female is too late. Where now is the fated fishwife? It has ceased from its sufferings. It has gone to a better land. All that is left of it for its loved ones to lament over is this poor smoldering ash heap ah woeful woeful ash heap let us take him up tenderly reverently upon the lowly shovel and bear him to his long rest with the prayer that when he rises again it will be a realm where he will have one good square responsible sex and have it all to himself instead of having a mangy lot of assorted sexes scattered all over him in spots there now The reader can see for himself that this pronoun business is a very awkward thing for the unaccustomed tongue. I suppose that in all languages the similarities of look and sound between words which have no similarity in meaning are a fruitful source of perplexity to the foreigner. It is so in our tongue, and it is notably the case in the German. Now there is that troublesome word, Vermeldt. To me it has so close a resemblance either real or fancied, to three or four other words that I never know whether it means despised, painted, suspected, or married, until I look in the dictionary, and then I find it means the latter. There are a lot of such words, and they are a great torment. To increase the difficulty, there are words which seem to resemble each other, and yet do not, but they make just as much trouble as if they did. For instance, there is the word vermitten to let, to lease, to hire, and the word verheiraten, another way of saying to marry. I heard of an Englishman who knocked at a man's door in Heidelberg and proposed, in the best German he could command, to verheiraten, that house. Then there are some words which mean one thing when you emphasize the first syllable, but something very different if you throw the emphasis on the last syllable. For instance, there is a word which means a runaway, or the act of glancing through a book, according to the placing of the emphasis, and another word which signifies to associate with a man, or to avoid him, according to where you put the emphasis, and you can generally depend on putting it in the wrong place and getting into trouble. There are some exceedingly useful words in this language, schlag, for example, and zug. There are three-quarters of a column of schlags in the dictionary, and a column and a half of zugs. The word schlag means blow, stroke, dash, hit, shock, clap, slap, time, bar, coin, stamp, kind, sort, manner, way, apoplexy, woodcutting, enclosure, field, forest clearing. This is its simple and exact meaning. That is to say, its restricted, its fettered meaning but there are ways by which you can set it free so that it can soar away as on the wings of the morning and never be at rest. You can hang any word you please to its tail and make it mean anything you want. You can begin with Schlagader, which means artery, and you can hang on the whole dictionary, word by word, clear through the alphabet to Schlagwasser, which means bilge water, and including Schlagmutter, which means mother-in-law. Just the same with Zug. Strictly speaking, Zug means pull, tug, draft, procession, march, progress, flight, direction, expedition, train, caravan, passage, smoke, touch, line, flourish, trait of character, feature, liniment, chess move, organ stop, team, whiff, bias, drawer, propensity, inhalation, disposition. But that thing which it does not mean, when all its legitimate pennants have been hung on, has not been discovered yet. One cannot overestimate the usefulness of schlag and zug. Armed with just these two and the word also, what cannot the foreigner on German soil accomplish? The German word also is the equivalent of the English phrase, you know, and does not mean anything at all in talk, although sometimes it does in print. Every time a German opens his mouth, an also falls out, and every time he shuts it, he bites one and two that was trying to get out now the foreigner equipped with these three noble words is the master of the situation let him talk right along fearlessly let him pour his indifferent german forth and when he lacks for a word let him heave a schlag into the vacuum all the chances are that it fits like a plug but if it doesn't let him promptly heave a zug after it the two together can hardly fail to bung the hole but if by a miracle they should fail let him simply say and this will give him a moment's chance to think of the needful word. In Germany, when you load your conversational gun, it is always best to throw in a schlag or two and a zug or two, because it doesn't make any difference how much of the rest of the charge may scatter. You are bound to bag something with them. Then you blandly say, also, and load up again. Nothing gives such an air of grace and elegance and unconstraint to a German or an English conversation as to scatter it full of alzos or you knows. In my notebook, I find this entry. July 1st. In the hospital yesterday, a word of thirteen syllables was successfully removed from a patient, a North German from near Hamburg. But as most unfortunately the surgeons had opened him in the wrong place, under the impression that he contained a panorama, he died. The sad event has cast a gloom over the whole community. That paragraph furnishes a text for a few remarks about one of the most curious and notable features of my subject, the length of German words. Some German words are so long that they have a perspective. Observe these examples. Freundschaftsbezeichungen, die Landen auf these things are not words, they are alphabetical processions, and they are not rare. One can open a German newspaper at any time and see them marching majestically across the page, and if he has any imagination, he can see the banners and hear the music, too. They impart a martial thrill to the meekest subject. I take a great interest in these curiosities. Whenever I come across a good one, I stuff it and put it in my museum. In this way, I have made quite a valuable collection. When I get duplicates, I exchange with other collectors, and thus increase the variety of my stock. Here are some rare specimens, which I lately bought at an auction sale of the effects of a bankrupt bric-a-brac hunter. General Versammlungen Altertumswissenschaften Kinderbewahrungsanstalten Unabhängigkeitserklärungen of course when one of these great mountain ranges goes stretching across the printed page it adorns and ennobles that literary landscape but at the same time it is a great distress to the new student for it blocks up his way he cannot crawl under it or climb over it or tunnel through it so he resorts to the dictionary for help but there is no help there the dictionary must draw the line somewhere, so it leaves this sort of words out. And it is right, because these long things are hardly legitimate words, but are rather combinations of words, and the inventor of them ought to have been killed. They are compound words with the hyphens left out. The various words used in building them are in the dictionary, but in a very scattered condition, so you can hunt the materials out, one by one, and get at the meaning at last, but it is a tedious and harassing business. I have tried this process upon some of the above examples. "Freundschaftsbezeigungen" seems to be friendship demonstrations, which is only a foolish and clumsy way of saying demonstrations of friendship. Unabhängigkeitserklärungen seems to be independence declarations, which is no improvement upon declarations of independence, so far as I can see. General Staatsverordneten Versammlungen seems to be general state representatives' meetings, as nearly as I can get at it. A mere rhythmical, gushy euphemism for meetings of the legislature, I judge. We used to have a good deal of this sort of crime in our literature, but it has gone out now. We used to speak of a thing as a never-to-be-forgotten circumstance, instead of cramping into it the simple and sufficient word, memorable, and then calmly going about our business as if nothing had happened. In those days, we were not content to embalm the thing and bury it decently. We wanted to build a monument over it. But in our newspapers, the compounding disease lingers a little to the present day, but with the hyphens left out, in the German fashion. This is the shape it takes. Instead of saying, Mr. Simmons, Clerk of the County and District Courts was in town yesterday. The new form puts it thus. Clerk of the County and District Courts Simmons was in town yesterday. This saves neither time nor ink and has an awkward sound besides. One often sees a remark like this in our papers. Mrs. Assistant District Attorney Johnson returned to her city residence yesterday for the season. That is a case of really unjustifiable compounding because it not only saves no time or trouble, but confers a title on Mrs. Johnson, which she has no right to. But these little instances are trifles indeed, contrasted with the ponderous and dismal German system of piling jumbled compounds together. I wish to submit the following local item from a Mannheim Journal, by way of illustration. In the day before yesterday, shorter after eleven o'clock night, the, in this town standing tavern, called the Wagoner, was downburned. When the fire to the on the downburning house restings stork's nest reached, flew the parent storks away. But when the by-the-raging, fire-surrounded nest itself caught fire, straightway plunged the quick-returning mother stork into the flames and died, her wings over her young ones outspread. Even the cumbersome German construction is not able to take the pathos out of that picture. Indeed, it somehow seems to strengthen it. This item is dated away back yonder months ago. I could have used it sooner, but I was waiting to hear from the father stork. I am still waiting. Also, if I had not shown that the German is a difficult language, I have at least intended to do so. I have heard of an American student who was asked how he was getting along with his German, and who answered promptly, I am not getting along at all. I have worked at hard for three level months, and all I have got to show for it is one solitary German phrase. Zwei glas. Two glasses of beer. He paused for a moment, reflectively, and added with feeling, But I've got that solid. And if I have also not shown that German is a harassing and infuriating study, my execution has been at fault, and not my intent. I heard lately of a worn and sorely tired American student who used to fly to a certain German word for relief when he could bear up under his aggravations no longer. The only word whose sound was sweet and precious to his ear and healing to his lacerated spirit. This was the word "damit." It was only the sound that helped him not the meaning note it generally means in its general sense herewith and so at last when he learned that the emphasis was not on the first syllable his only stay and support was gone and he faded away and died i think that a description of any loud stirring tumultuous episode must be tamer in german than in english our descriptive words of this character have such a deep strong resonant sound while their German equivalents do seem so thin and mild and energyless, Boom, burst, crash, roar, storm, bellow, blow, thunder, explosion, howl, cry, shout, yell, groan, battle, hell. These are magnificent words. They have a force and magnitude of sound befitting the things which they describe but their German equivalents would be ever so nice to sing the children to sleep with, or else my awe-inspiring ears were made for display, and not for superior usefulness in analyzing sounds. Would any man want to die in a battle which was called by so tame a term as a Schlacht? Or would not a consumptive feel too much bundled up, who was about to go out in a shirt-collar and a seal-ring into a storm which the birdsong word Gewitter was employed to describe? and observe the strongest of the several German equivalents for an explosion, Ausbruch. Our word toothbrush is more powerful than that. It seems to me that the Germans could do worse than import it into their language to describe particularly tremendous explosions with. The German word for hell, Hülle, sounds more like helly than anything else. Therefore, how (laughs) chipper, frivolous, and unimpressive it is. If a man were told in German to go there... Could he really rise to the dignity of feeling insulted? Having pointed out in detail the several vices of this language, I now come to the brief and pleasant task of pointing out its virtues, the capitalizing of nouns I have already mentioned. But far before this virtue stands another, that of spelling a word according to the sound of it. After one short lesson in the alphabet, the student can tell how any German word is pronounced without having to ask. Whereas in our language, if a student should inquire of us, what does B-O-W spell? We should be obliged to reply, nobody can tell what it spells when you set it off by itself. You can only tell by referring to the context and finding out what it signifies, whether it is a thing to shoot arrows with, or a nod of one's head, or the forward end of a boat. There are some German words which are singularly and powerfully effective. For instance, those which describe lowly, peaceful, and affectionate home life, those which deal in love, in any and all forms, for mere kindly feeling and honest goodwill toward the passing stranger, clear up to courtship, those which deal with the outdoor nature, in its softest and loveliest aspects, with meadows and forests and birds and flowers, the fragrance and sunshine of summer, and the moonlight of peaceful winter nights, in a word, Those which deal with any and all forms of rest, repose, and peace. Those also which deal with the creatures and marvels of fairyland, and lastly and chiefly, in those words which express pathos, is the language surpassingly rich and effective. There are German songs which can make a stranger to the language cry. That shows that the sound of the words is correct. It interprets the meanings with truth and with exactness, and so the ear is informed, and through the ear, the heart. The Germans do not seem to be afraid to repeat a word when it is the right one. They repeat it several times if they choose. That is wise. But in English, when we have used a word a couple of times in a paragraph, we imagine that we are growing tautological, and so we are weak enough to exchange it for some other word which only approximates exactness, to escape what we wrongly fancy is a greater blemish. Repetition may be bad, But surely, inexactness is worse. There are people in the world who would take a great deal of trouble to point out the faults in a religion or a language and go blandly about their business without suggesting any remedy. I am not that kind of person. I have shown that the German language needs reforming. Very well, I am ready to reform it. At least, I am ready to make the proper suggestions. Such a course as this might be immodest in another, but I have devoted upward of nine full weeks, first and last, to a careful and critical study of this tongue, and thus have acquired a confidence in my ability to reform it which no mere superficial culture could have conferred upon me. In the first place, I would leave out the date of case. It confuses the plurals, and besides, nobody ever knows when he is in the date of case, except he discover it by accident— And then he does not know when or where it was that he got into it, or how long he has been in it, or how he is going to get out of it again. The date of case is but an ornamental folly. It is better to discard it. In the next place, I would move the verb further up to the front. You may load up with ever so good a verb, but I notice that you never really bring down a subject with it at its present German range. You only cripple it so I insist that this important part of speech should be brought forward to a position where it may easily be seen with the naked eye. Thirdly, I would import some strong words from the English tongue, to swear with, and also to use in describing all sorts of vigorous things in a vigorous way. Note, Verdampt, and its variations and enlargements, are words which have plenty of meaning, But the sounds are so mild and ineffectual that German ladies can use them without sin. German ladies, who could not be induced to commit a sin by any persuasion or compulsion, promptly rip out one of these harmless little words when they tear their dresses or don't like the soup. It sounds about as wicked as are, My gracious! German ladies are constantly saying, Ach Gott! Mein Gott! Gott im Himmel! Herr Gott! Der Herr Jesus! etc., they think our ladies have the same custom perhaps for i once heard a gentle and lovely old german lady say to a sweet young american girl the two languages are so alike how pleasant that is we say ach gott you say god damn fourthly i would reorganize the sexes and distribute them accordingly to the will of the creator this as a tribute of respect if nothing else Fifthly. I would do away with those great long compounded words or require the speaker to deliver them in sections with intermissions for refreshments. To wholly do away with them would be best, for ideas are more easily received and digested when they come one at a time than when they come in bulk. Intellectual food is like any other. It is pleasanter and more beneficial to take it with a spoon than with a shovel. Sixthly, I would require a speaker to stop when he is done, and not hang a string of those useless Haben gewesen, gehabt haben geworden seins to the end of his oration. These sort of gijas undignify a speech instead of adding a grace. They are, therefore, an offense, and should be discarded. Seventhly, I would discard the parenthesis, also the re-parenthesis, the re-re-parenthesis, and the re-re-re-re-re-re-parentheses, and likewise the final wide-reaching all-enclosing king parenthesis. I would require every individual, be he high or low, to unfold a plain, straightforward tale, or else coil it and sit on it and hold his peace. Infractions of this law should be punishable with death. And eighthly, and last, I would retain Zug and Schlag with their pendants and discard the rest of the vocabulary. This would simplify the language. I have now named what I regard as the most necessary and important changes. These are perhaps all I could be expected to name for nothing, but there are other suggestions which I can and will make in case my proposed application shall result in my being formally employed by the government in the work of reforming the language. My philological studies have satisfied me that a gifted person ought to learn English barring spelling and pronouncing, in thirty hours, French in thirty days, and German in thirty years. It seems manifest, then, that the latter tongue ought to be trimmed down and repaired. If it is to remain as it is, it ought to be gently and reverently set aside among the dead languages, for only the dead have time to learn it. A Fourth of July oration in the German tongue delivered at a banquet of the anglo-american club of students by the author of this book gentlemen since i arrived a month ago in this old wonderland this vast garden of germany my english tongue has so often proved a useless piece of baggage to me and so troublesome to carry around in a country where they haven't the checking system for luggage that i finally set to work and learned the german language also, Es freut mich, dass dies so ist, denn es muss in ein hauptsächliches Degree höflich sein, dass man auf eine occasion like this sein Rede in die Sprache des landes vorennie Heboards aussprechen soll. Dafür habe ich aus rheinischer Verlegenheit, no Vergangenheit, no I mean Höflichkeit, aus rheinische Höflichkeit habe ich resolved to tackle this business in the German language um Gottes Willen. Also, sie müssen so freundlich sein und verzeih mich die Interladung von ein oder zwei englische Wörter hier und da, denn ich finde, dass die deutsche ist not a very copious language, and so when you've really got anything to say, you've got to draw on a language that can stand the strain. Wenn aber man kann nicht mit meinem Rede verstehen, so werde ich ihm später dasselbe übersetzen, wenn er solche Dienst verlangen wollen, haben werden sollen sein hätte. I don't know what wollen, haben, werden, sollen, sein, hätte means, but I notice they always put it at the end of a German sentence, merely for general literary gorgeousness, I suppose. This is a great and justly honored day, a day which is worthy of the veneration in which it is held by the true patriots of all climes and nationalities, a day which offers a fruitful theme for thought and speech, und meinem Freunde, no, meinen Freunden, meines Freundes, Well, take your choice. They're all the same price. I don't know which one is right. Also, ich habe gehabt haben geworden gewesen sein. As Goethe says in his Paradise Lost, ich, ich, that is to say, ich, but let us change cars. Also die anblich so viele großbritannische und amerikanische hier zusammengetroffenen brüderliche concord ist zwar a welcome and inspiring spectacle and what has moved you to it can the terse german tongue rise to the expression of this impulse is it freundschaftsbezeigungen stadtverordneten Versammlungen, familien eigentümlichkeiten nein oh nein this is a crisp and noble word, but it fails to pierce the marrow of the impulse which has gathered this friendly meeting and produced this Anblick, eine Anblick, welche ist gut zu sehen, gut für die Augen in a foreign land and a far country, eine Anblick solcher, als in the gewöhnliche Heidelberger Phrase nennt man ein schönes Aussicht. Ja, freilich, natürlich, wahrscheinlich ebenso wohl. Also, die Aussicht auf dem Königstuhl mehr Größe ist, aber geistliches Sprechen nicht so schön. Lob Gott because sie sind hier zusammengetroffen, in brüderlichem Konkord, ein tag zu fahren, whose high benefits were not for one land and one locality, but have conferred a measure of good upon all lands that know liberty today and love it. Hundert Jahre vorüber waren die Engländer und die Amerikaner Feinde, aber heute sind sie herzlichen Freunde, Gott sei Dank. May this good fellowship endure, may these banners here blended in amity so remain, may they never any more wave over opposing hosts, or be stained with blood which was kindred, is kindred, and always will be kindred, until a line drawn upon a map shall be able to say, this bars the ancestral blood from flowing in the veins of the descendant. End of the Awful German Language by Mark Twain
1: THE CAUSES FOR WHICH A PRESIDENT CAN BE Impeached by C. M. Ellis, from the Atlantic Monthly, January, 1867. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Constitution provides, in express terms, that the President as well as the Vice President and all civil officers may be impeached for treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. It was framed by men who had learned to their sorrow the falsity of the English maxim that the king can do no wrong, and established by the people, who meant to hold all their public servants, the highest and the lowest, to the strictest accountability. All were jealous of any squinting towards monarchy, and determined to allow to the chief magistrate no sort of regal immunity, but to secure his faithfulness and their own rights by holding him personally answerable for his misconduct, and to protect the government by making adequate provision for his removal. Moreover, they did not mean that the door should not be locked till after the horse had been stolen. By the Constitution, the House of Representatives has the sole power of impeachment, and the Senate the sole power to try all impeachments. When the President of the United States is tried on impeachment, the Chief Justice is to preside. The concurrence of two-thirds of the members present is necessary to convict. The President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. But judgment cannot extend further than to removal and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. Thus it is obvious that the founders of the government meant to secure it effectually against all official corruption and wrong, by providing for process to be initiated at the will of the popular branch, and furnishing an easy, safe, and sure method for the removal of all unworthy and unfaithful servants. By defining treason exactly, by prescribing the precise proofs and limiting the punishment of it, they guarded the people against one form of tyrannical abuse of power and they intended to secure them effectually against all injury from abuses of another sort, by holding the President responsible for his misdemeanors, using the broadest term. They guarded carefully against all dangers of popular excesses, and any injustice to the accused by withholding the general power of punishment. This term, misdemeanor, therefore, should be liberally construed, for the same reason that treason should not be extended by construction. It is not better for the State that traitors should remain in office than that innocent men should be expelled. Besides, it is true in relation to this procedure that the higher the post, the higher the crime. What, then, is the meaning of high crimes and misdemeanors for which a President may be removed? Neither the Constitution nor the statutes have determined. It follows, therefore, that the House must judge for what offenses it will present articles, and the Senate decide for what it will convict and from the very nature of the wrongs for which impeachment is the sole adequate remedy, as well as from the fact that the office of President and all its duties and relations are new, it is essential that they should be undefined, otherwise there could be no security for the State. But it does not by any means follow that therefore either the House or the Senate can act arbitrarily, or that there are not rules for the guidance of their conduct. The terms, high crimes and misdemeanors, like many other terms and phrases used in the Constitution, as, for instance, pardon, habeas corpus, ex post facto, and the term impeachment itself, had a settled meaning at the time of the establishment of the Constitution. There was no need of definition, for it was left to the House's exhibitors and the Chief Justice and the Senate as judges of the Articles to apply well-understood terms, inuditus mutandus, to new circumstances, as the exigencies of state, and the ends for which the Constitution was established, should require. The subject matter was new. The President was a new officer of state. His duties, his relations to the various branches of government and to the people, his powers, his oath, functions, duties, responsibilities, were all new. In some respects, old customs and laws were a guide. In others, there was neither precedent nor analogy but the common law principle was to be applied to the new matters according to their exigency, as the common law of contracts and of carriers is applied to carriage by steamboats and railroads, to corporations and expresses which have come into existence centuries since the law was established. Impeachment, the presentment of the most solemn grand inquest of the whole kingdom, had been in use from the earliest days of the English constitution and government. The terms, High crimes and misdemeanors, in their natural sense, embrace a very large field of actions. They are broad enough to cover all criminal misconduct of the President, all acts of commission or omission, forbidden by the Constitution and the laws. To the word misdemeanor, indeed, is naturally attached a yet broader signification, which would embrace personal character and behavior, as well as the proprieties of official conduct. Nor was nor is there any just reason why it should be restricted in this direction. For, in establishing a permanent national government to ensure purity and dignity, to secure the confidence of its own people and command the respect of foreign powers, it is not unfit that civil officers, and most especially the highest of all, the head of the people, should be answerable for personal demeanor. The term misdemeanor was likewise used to designate all legal offenses lower than felonies, all the minor transgressions, all public wrongs, not felonious in character. The common law punished whatever acts were productive of a disturbance to the public peace, or tended to incite to the commission of crime, or to injure the health or morals of the people, such as profanity, drunkenness, challenging to fight, soliciting to the commission of crime, carrying infection through the streets, an endless variety of offenses. These terms, when used to describe political offenses, have a signification coextensive with, or rather analogous to, but yet more extensive than their legal acceptation. For, as John Quincy Adams said, the legislature was vested with power of impeaching and removing for trivial transgressions beneath the cognizance of the law. The sense in which they are used in the Constitution is rendered clearer and more precise by the long line of precedents of decided cases to be found in the state trials and historical collections. Selden, in his judicature of Parliament, and Coke, in his Institutes, refer to many of these, and Commons names more than fifty impeachable offences. Amongst these are subverting the fundamental laws and introducing arbitrary power, for an ambassador to give false information to the king, to make a treaty between two foreign powers without the knowledge of the king, to deliver up towns without consent of his colleagues, to incite the king to act against the advice of parliament, to give the king evil counsel, for the Speaker of the House of Commons to refuse to proceed, for the Lord Chancellor to threaten the other judges to make them subscribe to his opinions. Woodison, who began to lecture in 1777, and whose works express the sense in which the terms were understood by the contemporaries of the founders of the Constitution, says that such kinds of misdeeds as peculiarly injure the Commonwealth by the abuses of high offices of trust are the most proper, and have been the most usual grounds for this kind of prosecution. As for example for the Lord Chancellor to act grossly contrary to the duty of his office, for the judges to mislead the sovereign by unconstitutional opinions, for any other magistrates to attempt to subvert the fundamental laws or introduce arbitrary power, as for a privy Councillor to propose or support pernicious or dishonorable practices. These text writers seem to have been referred to and followed by our later ones. But to the offenses enumerated by these authorities, we must add others taken from cases in the state trials. The High Court of Impeachment had included amongst political high crimes and misdemeanors the following, viz. For a Secretary of State to abuse the pardoning power, for the Lord Chancellor and Chief Justice of Ireland to attempt to subvert the laws and government and the rights of Parliament, for the Attorney General to prefer charges of treason falsely, for a Privy Councillor to try to alienate the affections of the people, for the Lord Chancellor to assume to dispense with the statutes, and to control them. It had been held to be a misdemeanor to incite the king to ill manners, to put away from the king good officers, and put about him wicked ones of their own party, to maintain robbers and murderers causing the king to pardon them, to get ascendancy over the king, and turn his heart from the peers of the realm, to prevent the great men of the realm from advising with the king, save in presence of the accused, and to cause the king to appoint sheriffs named by them, so as to get such men returned to Parliament as they desired, to the undoing of the loyal lords and the good laws and customs, to taunt the king's counsellors and call them unworthy to sit in council when they advised the king to reform the government, or to write letters declaring them traitors. The nature of the charges may be illustrated by one of the allegations against an evil judge. We give Article 8. The said William Scroggs, being advanced to be Lord Chief Justice of the Court of King's Bench, Ought by a sober, grave, and virtuous conversation, to have given a good example to the king's liege people, and to demean himself answerable to the dignity of so eminent a station, yet on the contrary thereof he doth, by his frequent and notorious excesses and debaucheries, and his profane and atheistical discourses, affront almighty God, dishonor his majesty, give countenance and encouragement to all manner of vice and wickedness, and bring the highest scandal on the public justice of the kingdom." Such was the nature of political offenses as known to the framers of the Constitution. It answered to the natural sense of the terms of the Constitution as understood by the people in establishing it. And it is plain that the founders of the government meant to establish, when such a government is vital to the safety and stability of the state, a jurisdiction coextensive with the influence of the officers subjected to it and with their official duties, their functions, and their public relations. The Federalists, in treating of this jurisdiction of the Senate, regarded it as extending over those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, and termed political as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to society itself. The people of America meant to rest their government on executive responsibility, and to apply to the President the principles which had been established as applicable only to the ministers, servants, and advisers of the King but to show what they regarded as the range of royal duty, they had put on record a list of charges against their own king himself, commencing thus. He has refused his assent to laws the most wholesome and necessary for the public good, on which they justified revolution. The Declaration of Independence will aid in determining what they would regard as offenses of the executive. No president has been impeached, but the charges exhibited against several other public officers throw light upon this subject. In 1797, articles of impeachment were found against William Blunt, a senator. The misdemeanors were not charged as being done in the execution of any office under the United States. He was not charged with misconduct in office, but with an attempt to influence the United States' Indian interpreter and to alienate the affection and confidence of the Indians. After the impeachment was known, but before it was presented to the Senate, the Senate expelled him, resolving that he was guilty of a high misdemeanor entirely inconsistent with his public trust and duty as a senator. In 1804, John Pickering, judge of the District Court of New Hampshire, was removed for 1. misbehavior as a judge, and amongst other causes, 4. for appearing drunk and frequently in a profane and indecent manner invoking the name of the Supreme Being. In 1804, Judge Chase was impeached and tried for arbitrary, oppressive, and unjust conduct in delivering his opinion on the law beforehand and debarring counsel from arguing the law, and for unjust, impartial, and intemperate conduct in obliging counsel to reduce their statements to writing, the use of rude and contemptuous language, and intemperate and vexatious conduct. These are cases of contemporaneous exposition. There have been other cases in the various states and some more recent ones in Congress, but they are not necessary to illustrate the subject. Just on the eve of the war, the Senate expelled Bright for writing a letter to Jefferson Davis introducing a man with an improvement in firearms as a reliable person. As Judge Story remarked, Political offenses are of so various and complex a character, so utterly incapable of being defined or classified, that the task of positive legislation would be impracticable if it were not almost absurd to attempt it. Referring to the text-writers we have named, and the causes of impeachment enumerated by them, he seems to justify the extremist cases by saying that, though they now seem harsh and severe, perhaps they were rendered necessary by existing corruptions and the importance of suppressing a spirit of favoritism and court intrigue. But others, again, he adds, were founded in the most salutary public justice, such as impeachments for malversations and neglects in office, for official oppression, extortion, and deceit, and especially for putting good magistrates out of office and advancing bad. He puts a case on which he expresses no opinion in such form that there can scarcely be any doubt of his opinion or any possibility of two opinions concerning it. Suppose a judge should countenance or aid insurgents in a meditated conspiracy or insurrection against the government. This is not a judicial act, and yet it ought certainly to be impeachable. Thus it appears that the political offenses of the Constitution for which civil officers are removable embrace besides the high crimes and misdemeanors of the criminal law a range as wide as the circle of official duties and the influences of official position they include not only breaches of duty but also misconduct during the tenure of office they extend to acts for which there is no criminal responsibility whatsoever they reach even personal conduct they include not merely acts of usurpation but all such acts as tend to subvert the just influence of official position to degrade the office, to contaminate society, to impair the government, to destroy the proper relations of civil officers to the people and to the government, and to the other branches of the government. In fine, it may also be said that for a President to have done anything which he ought not to have done, or to have left undone anything which he ought to have done, is just cause for his impeachment, if the House, by a majority vote, feels called on to make it the ground of charges, and the Senate, by a two-thirds vote, determines it to be sufficient. For the safety of the State is the supreme law, and these bodies are the final judges thereof. End of the Causes for Which a President Can Be Impeached by C. M. Ellis. Read by Leanne Howlett.
3: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit us at www.librivox.org. Crimes of Carnegie: Protest Against Condoning Crime in the Name of Philanthropy, says Eugene V. Debs, by Eugene V. Debs, published in Missouri Socialist, Volume 1, Number 15, April 13, 1901, Page. Many thousands of misguided people are applauding the alleged philanthropy of Andrew Carnegie, and of these by far the larger number are workingmen. Manifestly they have forgotten, or they have never heard of the horrors of Homestead, or perhaps they are too ignorant to understand or too cowardly to profit by the bloody lesson. The reckless prodigality of Carnegie with the plunder of his victims brings into boldest prominence the crimes he committed when they protested against his monstrous rapacity. Then what? An army of three hundred Pinkerton mercenaries were hired by this bloody benefactor to kill the men whose labor had made him a millionaire. He did not have the courage to execute his own murderous designs, so he commissioned another monster, Frick, by name, with bloodless veins and a heart of steel, to commit the crimes while he went to Europe and held high carnival with the titled snobs there until the ghastly work was done. It was one of the foulest conspiracies ever concocted against the working class and the very thought of its atrocities, after nearly ten years, fires the blood and crimsons the cheeks with righteous indignation. Not only were the Pinkerton murderers hired by Carnegie to kill his employees, but he had his steelworks surrounded by wires charged with deadly electric currents, and by pipes filled with boiling water, so that in the event of a strike or lockout, he could shock the life out of the very wretched bodies, or scald the flesh from their miserable bones. And this is the man who proposes to erect libraries for the benefit of the working class, and incidentally for the glory of Carnegie. Will the workingmen of this country accept any gift from the hands of Carnegie, red with the blood of their slain comrades? That some of them have already done so is to their everlasting shame. The employees who a few days ago received, with expressions of gratitude, the bonded booty to be held in trust for them until they become paupers, have debased themselves beyond expression. They may have to work for Carnegie, but they are not compelled to recognize as a gift the pennies he throws to them in return for the dollars he stole from them, and when they do, they are guilty of treason to their murdered brothers, and are better described as spineless poltroons than as self-respecting workingmen. Some years ago, when Carnegie endowed the first library for the alleged benefit of workingmen, I objected and i object now with increased emphasis such a library is monumental of the degeneracy of the working class it is a lasting rebuke to their intelligence and their integrity the workingmen of newcastle have led the revolt let their splendid example be followed wherever a carnegie library is suggested Let mass meetings of workingmen be held, and let the horrifying scenes of the Homestead Massacre be presented to stir them to a sense of indignation at the vulgar and insulting display of the spoil exploited from their class. Let honest workingmen everywhere protest against the acceptance of a gift which condones crime in the name of philanthropy. Let them put themselves upon record in terms that appeal to the honor of their class and the respect of all mankind. We want libraries, and we will have them in glorious abundance, when capitalism is abolished and the working men are no longer robbed by the philanthropic pirates of the Carnegie class. Then the library will be as it should be, a noble temple dedicated to culture and symbolizing the virtues of the people. Eugene Debs, March 30, 1901. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Recording by Brent Floyd.
4: Dedication and Preface to the Golden Treasury Edited by Francis T. Palgrave. This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Dedication to Alfred Tennyson, Poet Laureate this book in its progress has recalled often to my memory a man with whose friendship we were once honoured to whom no region of english literature was unfamiliar and who whilst rich in all the noble gifts of nature was most eminently distinguished by the noblest and the rarest just judgment and high-hearted patriotism it would have been hence a peculiar pleasure and pride TO DEDICATE WHAT I HAVE ENDEAVORED TO MAKE A TRUE NATIONAL ANTHOLOGY OF THREE CENTURIES TO HENRY HALLAM, BUT HE IS BEYOND THE REACH OF ANY HUMAN TOKENS OF LOVE AND REVERENCE, AND I DESIRE THEREFORE TO PLACE BEFORE IT A NAME UNITED WITH HIS BY ASSOCIATIONS WHICH, whilst POETRY RETAINS HER HOLD ON THE MINDS OF ENGLISHMEN, ARE NOT LIKELY TO BE FORGOTTEN. Your encouragement, given while traversing the wild scenery of Trerundinus, led me to begin the work, and it has been completed under your advice and assistance. For the favour now asked, I have thus a second reason, and to this I may add, the homage which is your right as poet, and the gratitude due to a friend, whose regard I rate at no common value. Permit me, then, to inscribe yourself a book which, I hope, may be found by many a lifelong fountain of innocent and exalted pleasure a source of animation to friends when they meet and able to sweeten solitude itself with best society with the companionship of the wise and the good with the beauty which the eye cannot see and the music only heard in silence if this collection proves a storehouse of delight to labor and to poverty If it teaches those indifferent to the poets to love them, and those who love them to love them more, the aim and the desire entertained in framing it will be fully accomplished. Preface. This little collection differs, it is believed, from others in the attempt made to include in it all the best original lyrical pieces and songs in our language, by writers not living, and none besides the best many familiar verses will hence be met with, also many which should be familiar. The editor will regard as his fittest readers those who love poetry so well that he can offer them nothing not already known and valued. For those who take up the book in serious and scholarly spirit, the following remarks on the plan and the execution are added the editor is acquainted with no strict and exhaustive definition of lyrical poetry but he has found the task of practical decision increase in clearness and in facility as he advanced with the work whilst keeping in view a few simple principles lyrical has been here held essentially to imply that each poem shall turn on some single thought feeling or situation In accordance with this, narrative, description, and didactic poems, unless accompanied by rapidity of movement, brevity, and the coloring of human passion, have been excluded. Humorous poetry, except in the very infrequent instances where a truly poetical tone pervades the whole, with what is strictly personal, occasional, and religious, has been considered foreign to the idea of the book." blank verse and the ten-syllable couplet with all pieces markedly dramatic have been rejected as alien from what is commonly understood by song and rarely conforming to lyrical conditions and treatment but it is not anticipated nor is it possible that all readers shall think the line accurately drawn some poems as gray's elegy the allegro and penseroso wordsworth's ruth or campbell's lord ullen might be claimed with perhaps equal justice for a narrative or descriptive selection, whilst with reference especially to ballads and sonnets, the editor can only state that he has taken his utmost pains to decide without caprice or partiality. This also is all he can plead in regard to a point even more liable to question. What degree of merit should give rank among the best? That a poem shall be worthy of the writer's genius, that it shall reach a perfection commensurate with its aim, that we should require finish in proportion to brevity, that passion, color, and originality cannot atone for serious imperfections in clearness, unity, or truth, that a few good lines do not make a good poem, that popular estimate is serviceable as a guidepost more than a compass, above all, that excellence should be looked for rather in the whole than in the parts. Such and other canons have been always steadily regarded. He may, however, add that the pieces chosen, and a far larger number rejected, have been carefully and repeatedly considered, and that he has been aided throughout by two friends of independent and exercised judgment, besides the distinguished person addressed in the dedication it is hoped that by this procedure the volume has been freed from that one-sidedness which must beset individual decisions but for the final choice the editor is alone responsible it would obviously have been invidious to apply the standard aimed at in this collection to the living nor even in the cases where this might be done without offence does it appear wise to attempt to anticipate the verdict of the future on our contemporaries even in the cases where this might be done without offence does it appear wise to attempt to anticipate the verdict of the future on our contemporaries should the book last poems by tennyson bryant Clare, lowell and others will no doubt claim and obtain their place among the best but the editor trusts that this will be effected by other hands and in days far distant chalmers vast collection with the whole works of all accessible poets not contained in it, and the best anthologies of different periods, have been twice systematically read through, and it is hence improbable that any omissions which may be regretted are due to oversight. The poems are printed entire, except in a very few instances, specified in the notes, where a stanza has been omitted. The omissions have been risked only when the piece could be thus brought to a closer lyrical unity, and, as essentially opposed to this unity, extracts obviously such are excluded. In regard to the text, the purpose of the book has appeared to justify the choice of the most poetical version, wherever more than one exists, and much labor has been given to present each poem, in disposition, spelling, and punctuation, to the greatest advantage for the permission under which the copyright pieces are inserted thanks are due the respective proprietors without whose liberal concurrence the scheme of the collection would have been defeated in the arrangement the most poetically effective order has been attempted the english mind has passed through phases of thought and cultivation so various and so opposed during these three centuries of poetry that a rapid passage between old and new like rapid alteration of the eye's focus in looking at the landscape, will always be wearisome and hurtful to the sense of beauty. The poems have therefore been distributed into books, corresponding, one, to the ninety years closing about 1616, two, thence to 1700, three, to 1800, four, to the half-century just ended, or, looking at the poets who more or less give each portion its distinctive character, they might be called the books of Shakespeare, Milton, Gray, and Wordsworth. The volume, in this respect, so far as the limitations of its range allow, accurately reflects the natural growth and evolution of our poetry. A rigidly chronological sequence, however, rather fits a collection aiming at instruction than at pleasure and the wisdom which comes through pleasure, within each book the pieces have therefore been arranged in gradations of feeling or subject the development of the symphonies of mozart and beethoven has been here thought of as a model and nothing placed without careful consideration and it is hoped that the contents of this anthology will thus be found to represent a certain unity as episodes in the noble language of shelley to that great poem which all poets Like the cooperating thoughts of one great mind, have built up since the beginning of the world. As he closes his long survey, the editor trusts he may add, without egotism, that he has found the vague general verdict of popular fame more just than those have thought who, with too severe a criticism, would confine judgments on poetry to the selected few of many generations not many appeared to have gained reputation without some gift or performance that in due degree deserved it and if no verses by certain writers who show less strength than sweetness or more thought than mastery in expression are printed in this volume it should not be imagined that they have been excluded without much hesitation and regret far less that they have been slighted throughout this vast and pathetic array of singers now silent Few have been honoured with the name poet, and have not possessed a skill in words, a sympathy with beauty, a tenderness of feeling, or seriousness in reflection, which render their works, although never perhaps attaining, that loftier and finer excellence here required, better worth reading than much of what fills the scanty hours that most men spare for self-improvement, or for pleasure in any of its more elevated and permanent forms and if this be true of even mediocre poetry, for how much more are we indebted to the best? Like the fabled Fountain of the Azores, but with a more various power, the magic of this art can confer on each period of life its appropriate blessing. On early years, experience. On maturity, calm. On age, youthfulness. Poetry gives treasures more golden than gold, leading us in higher and healthier ways than those of the world, and interpreting to us the lessons of nature. But she speaks best for herself. Her true accents, if the plan has been executed with success, may be heard throughout the following pages. Wherever the poets of England are honored, wherever the dominant language of the world is spoken, it is hoped that they will find fit audience." End of dedication and preface to the Golden Treasury.
0: The Different Degrees of Enjoyment Presented by the Contemplation of Nature by Alexander von Humboldt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. In reflecting upon the different degrees of enjoyment presented to us in the contemplation of nature, we find that the first place must be assigned to a sensation which is wholly independent of an intimate acquaintance with the physical phenomena presented to our view, or of the peculiar character of the region surrounding us. In the uniform plain bounded only by a distant horizon, where the lowly heather, the cistus or waving grasses, deck the soil, on the ocean shore, where the waves softly rippling over the beach leave a track, green with the weeds of the sea, everywhere the mind is penetrated by the same sense of the grandeur and vast expanse of nature, revealing to the soul, by a mysterious inspiration, THE EXISTENCE OF LAWS THAT REGULATE THE FORCES OF THE UNIVERSE. MERE COMMUNION WITH NATURE, MERE CONTACT WITH THE FREE AIR, EXERCISE A SOOTHING YET STRENGTHENING INFLUENCE ON THE WEARIED SPIRIT, CALM THE STORM OF PASSION, AND SOFTEN THE HEART WHEN SHAKEN BY SORROW TO ITS INMOST DEPTHS. EVERYWHERE, IN EVERY REGION OF THE GLOBE, IN EVERY STAGE OF INTELLECTUAL CULTURE, THE SAME SOURCES OF ENJOYMENT ARE ALIKE vouchsafed TO MAN. The earnest and solemn thoughts awakened by a communion with nature intuitively arise from a presentiment of the order and harmony pervading the whole universe, and from the contrast we draw between the narrow limits of our own existence and the image of infinity revealed on every side, whether we look upward to the starry vault of heaven, scan the far stretching plain before us, or seek to trace the dim horizon across the vast expanse of ocean. The contemplation of the individual characteristics of the landscape and of the conformation of the land in any definite region of the earth gives rise to a different source of enjoyment awakening impressions that are more vivid better defined and more congenial to certain phases of the mind than those of which we have already spoken at one time the heart is stirred by a sense of the grandeur of the face of nature by the strife of the elements or, as in Northern Asia by the aspect of the dreary barrenness of the far stretching steppes, at another time, softer emotions are excited by the contemplation of rich harvests wrested by the hand of man from the wild fertility of nature, or by the sight of human habitations raised beside some wild and foaming torrent. Here I regard less the degree of intensity. Than the difference existing in the various sensations that derive their charm and permanence from the peculiar character of the scene if i might be allowed to abandon myself to the recollections of my own distant travels i would instance among the most striking scenes of nature the calm sublimity of a tropical night when the stars not sparkling as in our northern skies shed their soft and planetary light over the gently heaving ocean. Or I would recall the deep valleys of the Cordilleras, where the tall and slender palms pierced the leafy veil around them, and waving on high their feathery and arrow-like branches for, as it were, a forest above a forest. Or I would describe the summit of the peak of Tenerife, when a horizontal layer of clouds, dazzling in whiteness, has separated the cone of cinders from the plain below, and suddenly the ascending current pierces the cloudy veil, so that the eye of the traveller may range from the brink of the crater, along the vine-clad slopes of Orotava, to the orange gardens and banana groves that skirt the shore. In scenes like these, it is not the peaceful charm uniformly spread over the face of nature that moves the heart but rather the peculiar physiognomy and conformation of the land, the features of the landscape, the ever-varying outline of the clouds, and their blending with the horizon of the sea, whether it lies spread before us like a smooth and shining mirror, or is dimly seen through the morning mist. All that the senses can but imperfectly comprehend, all that is most awful in such romantic scenes of nature, may become a source of enjoyment to man by opening a wide field to the creative powers of his imagination. Impressions change with the varying movements of the mind, and we are led by a happy illusion to believe that we receive from the external world that with which we have ourselves invested it. End of the different degrees of enjoyment presented by the contemplation of nature.
5: Last honors to Emerson, read for LibriVox.org by Alan Davis Drake. PREPARATIONS FOR A SIMPLE FUNERAL AT THE CONCORD UNITARIAN CHURCH FROM THE NEW YORK TIMES, CONCORD MASS, APRIL twenty-eighth, 1882 The arrangements for the funeral of Mr. Emerson are not yet quite completed. The time for the public service, however, has been fixed at 3.30 on Sunday afternoon and the place the unitarian church as already announced but the order of exercises is not quite arranged word has been received by telegraph in reply to invitations to be present from the rev dr w h furness of philadelphia and the rev dr frederick h hedge of cambridge announcing that they will attend AND IT IS EXPECTED THAT THE REVEREND JAMES FREEMAN CLARK WILL ALSO TAKE SOME PART IN THE EXERCISES. IT IS PROBABLE THAT THERE WILL BE BRIEF ADDRESSES BY ALL OF THESE GENTLEMEN, EACH OF WHOM HAS LONG ENJOYED THE CLOSE FRIENDSHIP OF MR. EMERSON. DR. FURNESS HAS BEEN HIS CLOSE FRIEND SINCE CHILDHOOD, AND THE TWO WERE CLASSMATES IN THE OLD BOSTON LATIN SCHOOL. THE UNITARIAN CHURCH HERE HAS BEEN WITHOUT A SETTLED PASTOR FOR SEVERAL MONTHS, THE REVEREND GRINNELL REYNOLDS, ITS FORMER PASTOR, BEING NOW THE SECRETARY OF THE AMERICAN UNITARIAN ASSOCIATION. AT THE PRESENT TIME HE IS ABSENT IN THE WEST ON BUSINESS CONNECTED WITH HIS OFFICE, AND IT IS THOUGHT THAT HE CANNOT REACH HERE IN SEASON FOR THE SERVICES, WHICH HE WOULD BE LIKELY TO CONDUCT IF HE WERE HERE. In his absence, the Rev. Mr. Brown, a Unitarian clergyman of Brookline, who has supplied the Concord pulpit occasionally of late, may conduct them. Mr. Emerson has attended this church somewhat regularly of late, and its ministers were welcome guests in his home. The same simplicity that characterized the recent funeral of Longfellow will mark Sunday's ceremonies here there will be an absence of display. The church exercises will not be tirelessly extended, nor severely formal, and there will be no showy procession to the grave. The family and chief mourners, with the exception perhaps of Mrs. Emerson, whose health is delicate, will walk from the old house at the conclusion of the private services there, to the church after the more public exercises here the coffin will be borne to the sleepy hollow cemetery the pall-bearers walking by its side and friends following on foot to many these simple and unostentatious ceremonies will recall the funeral and burial of hawthorne here this was on a bright sunny june afternoon seventeen years ago a host of literary people and men and women of distinction were present on that occasion and no doubt will be gathered in the old town on sunday afternoon longfellow holmes emerson lowell fields whipple and alcott were in the company assembled in this same unitarian church on that occasion and after the simple exercises here consisting mainly of an address by james freeman clark delivered in his particularly quiet and informal way THEY WALKED BESIDE OR FOLLOWED THE BODY OF THEIR FRIEND TO THE SAME RESTFUL VILLAGE GRAVEYARD. THEN, AS WILL PROBABLY BE THE CASE NOW, THERE WAS NO HEARSE AND NO LONG LINE OF SOMBER FUNERAL carriages. ON THE COFFIN WAS CARRIED THE MANUSCRIPT OF HAWTHORNE'S LAST AND UNFINISHED ROMANCE, AND HIS GRAVE WAS FILLED WITH FLOWERS. Emerson's body will be placed in the family vault beside those of the wife of his youth, whose early death, just as he was entering upon his career, so touched and saddened him. Here also are buried the son he lost and the brother. His resting place will be in the neighborhood of that of Hawthorne and also that of Thoreau. Hawthorne is buried in a retired part of the cemetery on the brow of the hill and in the midst of a cluster of tall pines, a spot which was a favorite one with the shy romancer, where he used frequently to stroll during his quiet, retired life at Concord, to muse and meditate. Opposite the grave of Hawthorne is Thoreau's, marked by a simple slab, recording only his name and the dates of his birth and death fitting notice will before long be taken of emerson's death by the people of concord and some exercises held in which the school children may take part the social club circle the famous village club which celebrated its centennial anniversary a short time ago and at which mr emerson made his last appearance on any formal occasion in the town will take appropriate action on his death at its next meeting the concord summer school of philosophy will devote a day of its session the coming season probably saturday july twenty second to a discussion of mr emerson's character and work by several of the eminent men who take part in the literary work of this particular institution which invites so many modern philosophers from distant parts to this famous town mr emerson was the oldest member of the social circle and had belonged to it for over forty years and in the summer school of philosophy he took much interest appearing occasionally when his health would permit at its meetings when some famous essayist was the attraction or some more than ordinary philosophic discussion was the feature many calls have been made at the emerson homestead and messages of condolence received to-day among the callers were mr emerson's venerable long-time neighbor a bronson alcott and dr c a bartoll of boston the body of mr emerson has been partially embalmed the countenance remains the same peaceful and serene look it bore at the time of death london April 29. The news, in its obituary article on Ralph Waldo Emerson, says that no history of the development of intellect in the nineteenth century would be complete, which takes no account of Mr. Emerson's works. End of Last Honors to Emerson From the New York Times. This recording is in the public domain.
3: The Materialist Basis of Education by Lena Morrow-Lewis This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Materialist Basis of Education by Lena Morrow-Lewis Among the many contributions the capitalist system has made to the progress of the race, One of the most valuable was the necessity of educating the members of the working class. No right or privilege or opportunity is given a lower or underclass unless that right or opportunity makes for the benefit and interest of the upper or dominant class. Two hundred years ago, one could find but few working men who could read or write. Education was the privilege of the upper class only. It was not necessary for the serf in the field to have a trained mind in order to plow a straight furrow. The skill to swing a scythe or sickle required no mental training or education. But the introduction and development of machinery and the use of steam and electricity necessitated a different type of worker from the unlettered, untutored surf in the field or the woman at the spinning wheel. To transform the crude ore into a fine steel rail required new skill. To assemble all the various elements together into a mighty engine called for the trained and educated workman. To operate an engine, demanded the skilled engineer. In short, the new industrial processes which the capitalist system gave the world necessitated the education and mental training of the workers in order that they might be fit and efficient wealth producers. Capitalism therefore created the economic or material reasons for the need of the great mass of the workers to be educated. It democratized education. While economic and material benefits have accrued to the master class through the education of the workers, while large profits were only possible through a trained and skilled laboring class, yet in this very thing which makes for the triumph of the master class financially, we see a potent and powerful factor in bringing about the political and industrial supremacy of the working class. Knowledge is power. Only as the workers have knowledge and intelligence can they solve the problem of their own political and industrial freedom. The capitalist masters have educated the workers to their advantage today, but for their undoing tomorrow. The thing that makes for the triumph of capitalism ultimately makes for its own downfall. Education of the workers for the benefit of the capitalist class means gain and profit only for the few, the upper class of today. Education of the workers for the benefit of the working class means gain and profit for the working class and ultimately for the whole human race. That which has served the capitalist class will someday serve the working class. The trained minds that create profits for the masters of today will create wealth for the producers to enjoy tomorrow. The future victories of the working class lie not so much in their numbers. The workers have always been in the vast majority. But in the knowledge that they possess, the ability to intelligently organize and act together on the political and economic fields, let us ever remember that knowledge is power. Recording by Brent Floyd
6: 95 Theses by Martin Luther This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by David Jakeway Disputation of Dr. Martin Luther on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences by Dr. Martin Luther, 1517 Out of love for the truth, and the desire to bring it to light, the following propositions will be discussed at Wittenberg, under the Presidency of the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of Arts and of Sacred Theology, and Lecturer in Ordinary on the Same at that place. Wherefore he requests that those who are unable to be present and debate orally with us may do so by letter. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. 1 our lord and master jesus christ when he said penitentium agite willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance two this word cannot be understood to mean sacramental penance i e confession and satisfaction which is administered by the priests three yet it means not inward repentance only nay there is no inward repentance which does not outwardly work diverse mortifications of the flesh Four. The penalty of sin, therefore, continues so long as hatred of self continues, for this is the true inward repentance, and continues until our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Five. The pope does not intend to remit, and cannot remit, any penalties other than those which he has imposed either by his own authority or by that of the canons. Six. The Pope cannot remit any guilt, except by declaring that it has been remitted by God and by assenting to God's remission, though to be sure he may grant remission in cases reserved to his judgment. If his right to grant remission in such cases were despised, the guilt would remain entirely unforgiven. 7. God remits guilt to no one whom he does not at the same time humble in all things and bring into subjection to his vicar, the priest. 8. The penitential canons are imposed only on the living, and, according to them, nothing should be imposed on the dying. 9. Therefore the Holy Spirit in the Pope is kind to us, because in his decrees he always makes exception of the article of death and of necessity. 10. Ignorant and wicked are the doings of those priests who, in the case of the dying, reserve canonical penances for purgatory. 11. This changing of the canonical penalty to the penalty of purgatory is quite evidently one of the tares that were sown while the bishops slept. 12. In former times, the canonical penalties were imposed not after, but before absolution, as tests of true contrition. 13. The dying are freed by death from all penalties. They are already dead to canonical rules and have a right to be released from them. 14. 14. The imperfect health of soul, that is to say, the imperfect love of the dying, brings with it of necessity great fear, and the smaller the love, the greater is the fear. 15. This fear and horror is sufficient of itself alone, to say nothing of other things, to constitute the penalty of purgatory, since it is very near to the horror of despair. 16. Hell, purgatory, and heaven seem to differ as do despair, almost despair, and the assurance of safety. 17. With souls in purgatory it seems necessary that horror should grow less and love increase. 18. It seems unproved, either by reason or scripture, that they are outside the state of merit, that is to say, of increasing love. 19. Again, it seems unproved that they, or at least that all of them, are certain or assured of their own blessedness, though we may be quite certain of it. 20. Therefore, by quote, full remission of all penalties, unquote, the Pope means actually not of all, but only those imposed by himself. 21. Therefore, those preachers of indulgences are in error who say that by the Pope's indulgences a man is freed from every penalty and saved twenty two, whereas he remits to souls in purgatory no penalty which, according to the canons, they would have had to pay in this life. twenty three, if it is at all possible to grant to any one the remission of all penalties whatsoever, it is certain that this remission can be granted only to the most perfect, that is, to the very fewest. twenty four, it must needs be, therefore, that the greater part of the people are deceived by that indiscriminate and high-sounding promise of release from penalty. 25. The power which the Pope has, in a general way, over purgatory, is just like the power which any bishop or curate has, in a special way, within his own diocese or parish. 26. The Pope does well when he grants remission to souls in purgatory, not by the power of the keys which he does not possess, but by way of intercession. 27. They preach man who say that so soon as the penny jingles into the money-box, the soul flies out of purgatory. 28. It is certain that when the penny jingles into the money-box, gain and avarice can be increased, but the result of the intercession of the Church is in the power of God alone. 29. Who knows whether all the souls in purgatory wish to be bought out of it, as in the legend of Saints Severinus and Paschal? 30. No one is sure that his own contrition is sincere, much less that he has attained full remission. 31. Rare as is the man that is truly penitent, so rare is also the man who truly buys indulgences, i.e. such men are most rare. 32. They will be condemned eternally, together with their teachers, who believe themselves sure of their salvation, because they have letters of pardon. 33 men must be on their guard against those who say that the Pope's pardons are that inestimable gift of God by which man is reconciled to him. 34. For these graces of pardon concern only the penalties of sacramental satisfaction, and these are appointed by man. 35. They preach no Christian doctrine who teach that contrition is not necessary in those who intend to buy souls out of purgatory, or to buy confessionalia thirty six every truly repentant christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt even without letters of pardon thirty seven every true christian whether living or dead has part in all the blessings of christ and the church and this is granted him by god even without letters of pardon thirty eight nevertheless the remission and participation in the blessings of the church which are granted by the pope are in no way to be despised for they are, as I have said, the declaration of divine remission. 39. It is most difficult, even for the very keenest theologians, at one and the same time to commend to the people the abundance of pardons, and the need of true contrition. 40. True contrition seeks and loves penalties, but liberal pardons only relax penalties and cause them to be hated, or at least furnish an occasion for hating them. 41. Apostolic pardons are to be preached with caution, lest the people may falsely think them preferable to other good works of love. 42. Christians are to be taught that the Pope does not intend the buying of pardons to be compared in any way to works of mercy. 43. Christians are to be taught that he who gives to the poor or lends to the needy does a better work than buying pardons. 44. Because love grows by works of love and man becomes better, but by pardons man does not grow better, only more free from penalty. 45. Christians are to be taught that he who sees a man in need and passes him by, and gives his money for pardons, purchases not the indulgences of the Pope, but the indignation of God. 46. Christians are to be taught that unless they have more than they need, they are bound to keep back what is necessary for their own families, and by no means to squander it on pardons. 47. Christians are to be taught that the buying of pardons is a matter of free will, and not of commandment. 48. Christians are to be taught that the Pope, in granting pardons, needs, and therefore desires, their devout prayer for him more than the money they bring. 49. Christians are to be taught that the Pope's pardons are useful if they do not put their trust in them, but altogether harmful if through them they lose their fear of God. 50. Christians are to be taught that if the Pope knew the exactions of the pardon preachers, he would rather that St. Peter's Church should go to ashes, than that it should be built up with the skin, flesh, and bones of his sheep. 51. Christians are to be taught that it would be the Pope's wish, as it is his duty, to give of his own money to very many of those from whom certain hawkers of pardons cajole money, even though the Church of St. Peter might have to be sold. 52. The assurance of salvation by letters of pardon is vain, even though the commissary, nay, even though the Pope himself were to stake his soul upon it. 53. They are enemies of Christ and of the Pope, who bid the word of God be altogether silent in some churches, in order that pardons may be preached in others. 54. Injury is done the word of God when, in the same sermon, an equal or longer time is spent on pardons than on this word. 55. It must be the intention of the Pope that if pardons, which are a very small thing, are celebrated with one bell, with single processions and ceremonies, then the gospel, which is the very greatest thing, should be preached with a hundred bells, a hundred processions, a hundred ceremonies. 56. The treasures of the Church, out of which the Pope grants indulgences, are not sufficiently named or known among the people of Christ. 57. THAT THEY ARE NOT TEMPORAL TREASURES IS CERTAINLY EVIDENT, FOR MANY OF THE vendors DO NOT POUR OUT SUCH TREASURES SO EASILY, BUT ONLY GATHER THEM. 58. NOR ARE THEY THE MERITS OF CHRIST AND THE SAINTS, FOR EVEN WITHOUT THE POPE THESE ALWAYS WORK GRACE FOR THE INNER MAN, AND THE CROSS, DEATH, AND HELL FOR THE OUTWARD MAN. 59. ST. LAWRENCE SAID THAT THE TREASURES OF THE CHURCH WERE THE CHURCH'S POOR, BUT HE SPOKE ACCORDING TO THE USAGE OF THE WORD IN HIS OWN TIME. Sixty. Without rashness we say that the keys of the Church, given by Christ's merit, are that treasure. Sixty one. For it is clear that for the remission of penalties and of reserved cases the power of the Pope is of itself sufficient. Sixty two. The true treasure of the Church is the most holy gospel of the glory and the grace of God. Sixty three. But this treasure is naturally most odious, for it makes the first to be last. Sixty four. On the other hand, the treasure of indulgences is naturally most acceptable, for it makes the last to be first. Sixty five. Therefore, the treasures of the gospel are nets with which they formerly were wont to fish for men of riches. Sixty six. The treasures of the indulgences are nets with which they now fish for the riches of men. Sixty seven. The indulgences which the preachers cry as the greatest graces are known to be truly such in so far as they promote gain. Sixty eight. Yet they are in truth the very smallest graces compared with the grace of God and the piety of the cross. Sixty nine. Bishops and curates are bound to admit the commissaries of apostolic pardons with all reverence. Seventy but still more are they bound to strain all their eyes and attend with all their ears, lest these men preach their own dreams instead of the commission of the Pope. 71. He who speaks against the truth of apostolic pardons, let him be anathema and accursed. 72. But he who guards against the lust and license of the pardon preachers, let him be blessed. 73. The Pope justly thunders against those who, by any art, contrive the injury of the traffic in pardons. Seventy-four. But much more does he intend to thunder against those who use the pretext of pardons to contrive the injury of holy love and truth. Seventy-five. To think the papal pardons so great that they could absolve a man even if he had committed an impossible sin and violated the mother of God. This is madness. Seventy-six. We say, on the contrary, that the papal pardons are not able to remove the very least of venial sins, so far as its guilt is concerned. 77. It is said that even St. Peter, if he were now Pope, could not bestow greater graces. This is blasphemy against St. Peter and against the Pope. 78. We say, on the contrary, that even the present Pope, and any Pope at all, has greater graces at his disposal, to wit, the gospel, powers, gifts of healing, etc., as it is written in 1 Corinthians 12. 79. To say that the cross, emblazoned with the papal arms which is set up by the preachers of indulgences, is of equal worth with the cross of Christ, is blasphemy. 80. The bishops, curates, and theologians who allow such talk to be spread among the people will have an account to render. 81. 81. This unbridled preaching of pardons makes it no easy matter, even for learned men, to rescue the reverence due the Pope from slander, or even from the shrewd questionings of the laity. 82. To wit, Why does not the Pope empty purgatory, for the sake of holy love, and of the dire need of the souls that are there, if he redeems an infinite number of souls for the sake of miserable money with which to build a church? The former reasons would be most just, the latter is most trivial. 83. Again, why are mortuary and anniversary masses for the dead continued, and why does he not return or permit the withdrawal of the endowments founded on their behalf, since it is wrong to pray for the redeemed? 84. Again, what is this new piety of God and the Pope, that for money they allow a man who is impious, and their enemy, to buy out of purgatory the pious soul of a friend of God? and do not rather, because of that pious and beloved soul's own need, free it for pure love's sake. 85. Again, why are the penitential canons long since in actual fact and through disuse abrogated and dead, now satisfied by the granting of indulgences, as though they were still alive and in force? 86. Again, why does not the Pope, whose wealth is today greater than the riches of the richest, Build just this one Church of St. Peter with his own money, rather than with the money of poor believers. 87. Again, what is it that the Pope remits, and what participation does he grant to those who, by perfect contrition, have a right to full remission and participation? 88. Again, what greater blessing could come to the Church than if the Pope were to do a hundred times a day what he now does once, and bestow on every believer these remissions and participations? 89. Since the Pope, by his pardons, seeks the salvation of souls rather than money, why does he suspend the indulgences and pardons granted heretofore, since these have equal efficacy? 90. To repress these arguments and scruples of the laity by force alone, and not to resolve them by giving reasons, is to expose the Church and the Pope to the ridicule of their enemies, and to make Christians unhappy. 91. If, therefore, pardons were preached according to the spirit and mind of the Pope, all these doubts would be readily resolved, nay, they would not exist. 92. Away, then, with all those prophets who say to the people of Christ, Peace, peace, and there is no peace. 93. Blessed be all those prophets who say to the people of Christ, Cross, cross, and there is no cross. 94. Christians are to be exhorted that they be diligent in following Christ, their head, through penalties, deaths, and hell. 95. And thus be confident of entering into heaven rather through many tribulations than through the assurance of peace. End of 95 Theses by Martin Luther.
7: On the Antiseptic Principle of the Practice of Surgery This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot on the antiseptic principle of the practice of surgery eighteen sixty seven by joseph lister in the course of an extended investigation into the nature of inflammation and the healthy and morbid conditions of the blood in relation to it i arrived several years ago at the conclusion that the essential cause of suppuration in wounds is decomposition brought about by the influence of the atmosphere upon blood or serum retained within them, and, in the case of contused wounds, upon portions of tissue destroyed by the violence of the injury. To prevent the occurrence of superation with all its attendant risks was an object manifestly desirable, but till lately apparently unattainable, since it seemed hopeless to attempt to exclude the oxygen which was universally regarded as the agent by which putrefaction was effected but when it had been shown by the researches of pasteur that the septic properties of the atmosphere depended not on the oxygen or any gaseous constituent but on minute organisms suspended in it which owed their energy to their vitality it occurred to me that decomposition in the injured part might be avoided without excluding the air by applying as a dressing some material capable of destroying the life of the floating particles upon this principle i have based a practice of which i will now attempt to give a short account the material which i have employed is carbolic or phenic acid a volatile organic compound which appears to exercise a peculiarly destructive influence upon low forms of life and hence is the most powerful antiseptic with which we are at present acquainted the first class of cases to which i applied it was that of compound fractures in which the effects of decomposition in the injured part were especially striking and pernicious the results have been such as to establish conclusively the great principle that all local inflammatory mischief and general febrile disturbances which follow severe injuries are due to the irritating and poisonous influence of decomposing blood or sloughs for these evils are entirely avoided by the antiseptic treatment so that limbs which would otherwise be unhesitatingly condemned to amputation may be retained with confidence of the best results in conducting the treatment the first object must be the destruction of any septic germs which may have been introduced into the wounds either at the moment of the accident or during the time which has since elapsed this is done by introducing the acid of full strength into all accessible recesses of the wound by means of a piece of rag held in dressing forceps and dipped into the liquid note one The addition of a few drops of water to a considerable quantity of the acid induces it to assume permanently the liquid form. This I did not venture to do in the earlier cases, but experience has shown that the compound which carbolic acid forms with the blood, and also any portions of the tissue killed by its caustic action, including even parts of the bone, are disposed of by absorption and organization, provided they are afterward kept from decomposing. We are thus enabled to employ the antiseptic treatment efficiently at a period after the occurrence of the injury at which it would otherwise probably fail. Thus I have now under my care, in Glasgow Infirmary, a boy who was admitted with compound fracture of the leg as late as eight and one-half hours after the accident, in whom, nevertheless, all local and constitutional disturbance was avoided by means of carbolic acid and the bones were soundly united five weeks after his admission. The next object to be kept in view is to guard effectually against the spreading of decomposition into the wound along the stream of blood and serum which oozes out during the first few days after the accident, when the acid originally applied has been washed out or dissipated by absorption and evaporation. This part of the treatment has been greatly improved during the past few weeks. The method which I have hitherto published see lancet for march sixteenth twenty third thirtieth and april twenty seventh of the present year consisted in the application of a piece of lint dipped in the acid overlapping the sound skin to some extent and covered with a tin cap which was daily raised in order to touch the surface of the lint with the antiseptic this method certainly succeeded well with wounds of moderate size and indeed i may say that in all the many cases of this kind which have been so treated by myself or my house surgeons not a single failure has occurred. When, however, the wound is very large, the flow of blood and serum is so profuse, especially during the first twenty-four hours, that the antiseptic application cannot prevent the spread of decomposition into the interior unless it overlaps the sound skin for a very considerable distance. And this was inadmissible by the method described above on account of the extent sloughing of the surface of the cutis which it would involve. This difficulty has, however, been overcome by employing a paste composed of common whiting carbonate of lime mixed with a solution of one part of carbolic acid in four parts of boiled linseed oil so as to form a firm putty. This application contains the acid in too dilute a form to excoriate the skin, which it may be made to cover to any extent that may be thought desirable, while its substance serves as a reservoir of the antiseptic material. So long as any discharge continues, the paste should be changed daily, and in order to prevent the chance of mischief occurring during the process, a piece of rag dipped in the solution of carbolic acid and oil is put on next the skin, and maintained there permanently, care being taken to avoid raising it along with the putty. This rag is always kept in an antiseptic condition, from contact with the paste above it, and destroys any germs which may fall upon it during the short time that should alone be allowed to pass in the changing of the dressing. The putty should be in a layer about a quarter of an inch thick, and may be advantageously applied, rolled out between two pieces of thin calico, which maintain it in the form of a continuous sheet, which may be wrapped in a moment round the whole circumference of a limb, if this be thought desirable, while the putty is prevented by the calico from sticking to the rag which is next to the skin. Note 2 in order to prevent evaporation of the acid which passes readily through any organic tissue such as the oiled silk or gutta-percha it is well to cover the paste with a sheet of block tin or tin foil strengthened with adhesive plaster the thin sheet lead used for lining tea-chest will also answer the purpose and may be obtained from any wholesale grocer when all discharge has ceased the use of the paste is discontinued but the original rag is left adhering to the skin till healing by scabbing is supposed to be complete i have at present in the hospital a man with severe compound fracture of both bones of the left leg caused by direct violence who after the cessation of the saniest discharge under the use of the paste without a drop of pus appearing has been treated for the last two weeks exactly as if the fracture was a simple one during this time the rag adhering by means of a crust of inspissated blood collected underneath it has continued perfectly dry and it will be left untouched until the usual period for removing the splints in a simple fracture when we may fairly expect to find a sound cicatrix beneath it we cannot however always calculate on so perfect a result as this more or less pus may appear after the lapse of the first week and the larger the wound the more likely this is to happen and here i would desire earnestly to enforce the necessity of persevering with the antiseptic application, in spite of the appearance of superation, as long as other symptoms are favorable. The surgeon is extremely apt to suppose that any suppuration is an indication that the antiseptic treatment has failed, and that poulticing or water-dressing should be resorted to, but such a course would in many cases sacrifice a limb or a life. I cannot, however, expect my professional brethren to follow my advice blindly in such a matter, and therefore i feel it necessary to place before them as shortly as i can some pathological principles intimately connected not only with the point we are immediately considering but with the whole subject of this paper if a perfectly healthy granulating sore be well washed and covered with a plate of clean metal such as block tin fitting its surface pretty accurately and overlapping the surrounding skin an inch or so in every direction and retained in position by adhesive plaster and a bandage it will be found, on removing it after 24 or 48 hours, that little or nothing that can be called pus is present, merely a little transparent fluid, while at the same time there is an entire absence of the unpleasant odor invariably perceived when water dressing is changed. Here the clean metallic surface presents no recesses, like those of porous lint, for the septic germs to develop in. The fluid exuding from the surface of the granulations has flowed away undecomposed, and the result is the absence of superation this simple experiment illustrates the important fact that granulations have no inherent tendency to form pus but do so only when subjected to preternatural stimulus further it shows that the mere contact of a foreign body does not of itself stimulate granulations to superate whereas the presence of decomposing organic matter does these truths are even more strikingly exemplified by the fact that i have elsewhere recorded lancet march twenty third eighteen sixty seven that a piece of dead bone free from decomposition may not only fail to induce the granulations around it to superate but may actually be absorbed by them whereas a bit of dead bone soaked with putrid pus infallibly induces superation in its vicinity another instructive experiment is to dress a granulating sore with some of the putty above described overlapping the sound skin extensively when we find in the course of twenty-four hours that pus has been produced by the sore although the application has been perfectly antiseptic and indeed the larger amount of carbolic acid in the paste the greater is the quantity of pus formed provided we avoid such a proportion as would act as a caustic the carbolic acid though it prevents decomposition induces suppuration, obviously by acting as a chemical stimulus and we may safely infer that putrescent organic materials which we know to be chemically acrid operate in the same way in so far then carbolic acid and decomposing substances are alike viz that they induce suppuration by chemical stimulation as distinguished from what may be termed simple inflammatory suppuration such as that in which ordinary abscesses originate where the pus appears to be formed in consequence of an excited action of the nerves independent of any other stimulus. There is, however, this enormous difference between the effects of carbolic acid and those of decomposition, viz. that carbolic acid stimulates only the surface to which it is at first applied, and every drop of discharge that forms weakens the stimulant by diluting it. But decomposition is a self-propagating and self-aggravating poison, and if it occur at the surface of a severely injured limb, it will spread into all its recesses so far as any extravasated blood or shreds of dead tissue may extend, and lying in those recesses it will become from hour to hour more acrid, till it requires the energy of a caustic sufficient to destroy the vitality of any tissues naturally weak from inferior vascular supply, or weakened by the injury they sustained in the accident. Hence it is easy to understand how, when a wound is very large, the crust beneath the rag may prove here and there insufficient to protect the raw surface from the stimulating influence of the carbolic acid in the putty and the result will be first the conversion of the tissue so acted on into granulations and subsequently the formation of more or less pus this however will be merely superficial and will not interfere with the absorption and organization of extravasated blood or dead tissues in the interior but on the other hand should decomposition set in before the internal parts have become securely consolidated the most disastrous results may ensue. I left behind me in Glasgow a boy, thirteen years of age, who between three and four weeks previously met with a most severe injury to the left arm, which he got entangled in a machine at a fair. There was a wound six inches long and three inches broad, and the skin was very extensively undermined beyond its limits, while the soft parts were generally so much lacerated that a pair of dressing forceps introduced at the wound and pushed directly inwards, appeared beneath the skin at the opposite aspect of the limb. From this wound several tags of muscle were hanging, and among them was one consisting of about three inches of the triceps and almost its entire thickness, while the lower fragment of the bone, which was broken high up, was protruding four inches and a half, stripped of muscle, the skin being tucked in under it. Without the assistance of the antiseptic treatment I would certainly have thought of nothing else, but amputation at the shoulder joint. But as the radial pulse could be felt and the fingers had sensation, I did not hesitate to try to save the limb, and adopted the plan of treatment above described, wrapping the arm from shoulder to below the elbow in the antiseptic application, the whole interior of the wound, together with the protruding bone, having previously been freely treated with strong carbolic acid. About the tenth day, the discharge, which up to that time had been only sanius and serous, showed a slight admixture of slimy pus and this increased till a few days before i left it amounted to about three drachms in twenty-four hours but the boy continued as he had been after the second day free from unfavourable symptoms with pulse tongue appetite and sleep natural and strength increasing while the limb remained as it had been from the first free from swelling redness or pain i therefore persevered with the antiseptic dressing and before I left the discharge was already somewhat less, while the bone was becoming firm. I think it likely that, in that boy's case, I should have found merely a superficial sore had I taken off all the dressings at the end of the three weeks, though, considering the extent of the injury, I thought it prudent to let the month expire before disturbing the rag next the skin. But I feel sure that, if I had resorted to ordinary dressing when the pus first appeared, the progress of the case would have been exceedingly different." the next class of cases to which i have applied the antiseptic treatment is that of abscesses here also the results have been extremely satisfactory and in beautiful harmony with the pathological principles indicated above the pyogenic membrane like the granulations of a sore which it resembles in nature forms pus not from any inherent disposition to do so but only because it is subjected to some preternatural stimulation in an ordinary abscess whether acute or chronic before it is opened the stimulus which maintains the superation is derived from the presence of pus pent up within the cavity when a free opening is made in the ordinary way this stimulus is got rid of but the atmosphere gaining access to the contents the potent stimulus of decomposition comes into operation and pus is generated in greater abundance than before but when the evacuation is effected on the antiseptic principle the pyogenic membrane freed from the influence of the former stimulus without the substitution of a new one ceases to superate like the granulations of a sore under metallic dressing furnishing merely a trifling amount of clear serum and whether the opening be dependent or not rapidly contracts and coalesces at the same time any constitutional symptoms previously occasioned by the accumulation of the matter are got rid of without the slightest risk of the irritative fever hectic hitherto so justly dreaded in dealing with large abscesses. In order that the treatment may be satisfactory, the abscess must be seen before it is opened. Then, except in very rare and peculiar cases, there are no septic organisms in the contents, so that it is heedless to introduce carbolic acid into the interior. Indeed, such a procedure would be objectionable, as it would stimulate the pyogenic membrane to unnecessary superation. All that is requisite is to guard against the introduction of living atmospheric germs from without, at the same time that free opportunity is afforded for the escape of the discharge from within. Note 3. As in the instance of one of these exceptional cases, I may mention that of an abscess in the vicinity of the colon, and afterwards proved by post-mortem examination to have once communicated with it. Here the pus was extremely offensive when evacuated, and exhibited vibrios under the microscope i have so lately given elsewhere a detailed account of the method by which this is effected lancet july twenty seventh eighteen sixty seven that i shall not enter into it at present further than to say that the means employed are the same as those described above for the superficial dressing of compound fractures viz a piece of rag dipped into the solution of carbolic acid and oil to serve as an antiseptic curtain under cover of which the abscess is evacuated by free incision and the antiseptic paste to guard against decomposition occurring in the stream of pus that flows out beneath it, the dressing being changed daily until the sinus is closed. The most remarkable results of this practice in a pathological point of view have been afforded by cases where the formation of pus depended on disease of bone. Here the abscesses, instead of forming exceptions to the general class in the obstinacy of the superation, have resembled the rest in yielding in a few days only a trifling discharge, and frequently the production of pus has ceased from the moment of the evacuation of the original contents. Hence it appears that caries, when no longer laboring as heretofore under the irritation of decomposing matter, ceases to be an opprobrium of surgery, and recovers like other inflammatory affections. In the publication before alluded to, I have mentioned the case of a middle-aged man with a psoas abscess depending in diseased bone, in whom the sign is finally closed after months of patient perseverance with the antiseptic treatment. Since that article was written, I have had another instance of abscess equally gratifying, but the differing in the circumstance that the disease and the recovery were more rapid in their course. The patient was a blacksmith who had suffered four and a half months before I saw him from symptoms of ulceration of cartilage in the left elbow these had latterly increased in severity so as to deprive him entirely of his night's rest and of appetite i found the region of the elbow greatly swollen and on careful examination found a fluctuating point at the outer aspect of the articulation i opened it on the antiseptic principle the incision evidently penetrating to the joint giving exit to a few drachms of pus the medical gentleman under whose care he was dr MacGregor of glasgow supervised the daily dressing with the carbolic acid paste till the patient went to spend two or three weeks at the coast, when his wife was entrusted with it. Just two months after I opened the abscess, he called to show me the limb, stating that the discharge had been, for at least two weeks, as little as it was then, a trifling moisture upon the paste, such as might be accounted for by the little sore caused by the incision. On applying a probe guarded with an antiseptic rag, I found that the sinus was soundly closed, while the limb was free from swelling or tenderness, and although he had not attempted to exercise it much the joint could already be moved through a considerable angle here the antiseptic principle had effected the restoration of a joint which on any other known system of treatment must have been excised ordinary contused wounds are of course amenable to the same treatment as compound fractures which are a complicated variety of them i will content myself with mentioning a single instance of this class of cases in april last a volunteer who was discharging a rifle when it burst and blew back the thumb with its metacarpal bone so that it could be bent back as on a hinge at the trapezial joint which had evidently been opened while all the soft parts between the metacarpal bones of the thumb and forefinger were torn through i need not insist before my present audience on the ugly character of such an injury my house surgeon mr hector cameron applied carbolic acid to the whole raw surface and completed the dressing as if for a compound fracture the hand remained free from pain redness or swelling and with the exception of a shallow groove all the wound consolidated without a drop of matter so that if it had been a clean cut it would have been regarded as a good example of primary union the small granulating surface soon healed and at present a linear cicatrix alone tells of the injury he has sustained while his thumb has all its movements and his hand a fine grasp if the severest forms of contused and lacerated wounds heal thus kindly under the antiseptic treatment it is obvious that its application to simple incised wounds must be merely a matter of detail i have devoted a good deal of attention to this class but i have not as yet pleased myself altogether with any of the methods i have employed i am however prepared to go as far as to say that a solution of carbolic acid in twenty parts of water while a mild and cleanly application may be relied on for destroying any septic germs that may fall upon the wound during the performance of an operation, and also that, for preventing the subsequent introduction of others, the paste above described, applied as for compound fractures, gives excellent results. Thus I have had a case of strangulated inguinal hernia, in which it was necessary to take away half a pound of thickened omentum, heal without any deep-seated suppuration or any tenderness of the sac, or any fever, and amputations, including one immediately below the knee, have remained absolutely free from constitutional symptoms. Further, I have found that when the antiseptic treatment is efficiently conducted, ligatures may be safely cut short and left to be disposed of by absorption or otherwise. Should this particular branch of the subject yield all that it promises, should it turn on further trial that when the knot is applied on the antiseptic principle, we may calculate as securely as if it were absent on the occurrence of healing without any deep-seated superation. The delegation of main arteries in their continuity will be deprived of the two dangers that now attend it, viz. those of secondary hemorrhage and an unhealthy state of the wound. Further, it seems not unlikely that the present objection to tying an artery in the immediate vicinity of a large branch may be done away with, and that even the enominate, which has lately been the subject of an ingenious experiment, by one of the dublin surgeons on account of its well-known fatality under the ligature for secondary hemorrhage may cease to have this unhappy character when the tissues in the vicinity of the thread instead of becoming softened through the influence of an irritating decomposing substance are left at liberty to consolidate firmly near an unoffending though foreign body it would carry me far beyond the limited time which by the rules of the association is alone at my disposal were i to enter into the various applications of the antiseptic principle in the several special departments of surgery there is however one point more than i cannot but advert to viz the influence of this mode of treatment upon the general healthiness of a hospital previously to its introduction the two large wards in which most of my cases of accident and of operation are treated were among the unhealthiest in the whole surgical division of the glasgow royal infirmary in consequence apparently of those wards being unfavorably placed with reference to the supply of fresh air and i have felt ashamed when recording the results of my practice to have so often to allude to hospital gangrene or pyemia it was interesting though melancholy to observe that whenever all or nearly all the beds contained cases with open sores these grievous complications were pretty sure to show themselves so that i came to welcome simple fractures though in themselves of little interest, either for myself or the students, because their presence diminished the proportion of open sores among the patients. But since the antiseptic treatment has been brought into full operation, and wounds and abscesses no longer poison the atmosphere with putrid exhalations, my wards, though in other respects under precisely the same circumstances as before, have completely changed their character, so that during the last nine months not a single instance of pyemia, hospital gangrene, or erysipelas has occurred in them. As there appears to be no doubt regarding the cause of this change, the importance of the fact can hardly be exaggerated. End of On the Antiseptic Principle of the Practice of Surgery by Joseph Lister
1: Progress of Medical Science From Vanity Fair February Eighteenth, 1860 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Progress of Medical Science A Western clergyman named H.T. Lewis, having been attacked by bronchitis, his physician prescribed a situation as conductor on the Memphis and Charleston Railroad, which the invalid straightaway took. We learn that he is rapidly running off his disease at the rate of 30 miles an hour, or thereabout. If the final success be equal to present indications, it will be evident that medical men are on the track of a great discovery. It has hitherto been understood that the mission of railroads is to endanger and destroy rather than preserve human life. This new development of the law of compensation will be welcomed with delight even if the restorative power of the railroad should be confined to throat diseases, much will be gained. A mild case of catarrh might be overcome by a few days' duty in the capacity of brakeman. For an ordinary sore throat, a trip or two as fireman ought to operate favorably. A mere cold in the head would simply call for a little service as lubricator of machinery, and in case of accompanying nasal impediment, A judicious application of the same grease to the obstructed member would be advantageous. And so on through the chapter. The arrangement would benefit both sides, for, notwithstanding their characteristic modesty, it is not to be expected that railroad companies could forgo the legitimate opportunities of profit they would open to them. Railway service would command a premium, and naturally enough, advertisements of this description would appear thus. CONSUMPTION CAN BE CURED There is a disease whose unrelenting fangs ruthlessly penetrate the sanctity of the family circle, and whose ravages countless thousands mourn. Its progress is insidious. Its effects are fatal to the bodies of its victims and harrowing to the minds of surviving relatives, and its name is consumption. For ages it has baffled the skill of the wise and ridden its course of devastating triumph. But its day is now over, and its doom is sealed, for consumption can be cured. Likewise, coughs, colds, and catars, and kindred diseases. The Scohegan and Tallahassee Railroad Company beg to announce to the afflicted that desirable situations on their trains are now open at moderate rates. Particulars may be learned on personal application. The attention of sufferers from stiff necks is particularly invited, as there is at present a number of vacancies in the engine driving department, where immovability of head and neck from one direct position is requisite. NB. It must be distinctly understood that the company refuses to assume all responsibility in case of accident. The company can only undertake to cure or kill. Come and try it. Come and try it. Come and try it. Terms moderate. Terms moderate. Terms moderate. End of progress of medical science. Read by Leanne Howlett.
8: Ruth bought by New York Americans for $125,000. New York Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Tassinari. Ruth bought by New York Americans for $125,000. Highest price in baseball annals. January 6, 1920, New York Times. Yanks buy Babe Ruth for $125,000. Highest purchase price in baseball history paid for game's greatest slugger. We'll get new contract miller huggins is now in california to sign home run king at large salary slated for right field acquisition of noted batsman gives new york club the hard-hitting outfielder long desired babe ruth of the boston red sox baseball super slugger was purchased by the yankees yesterday for the largest cash sum ever paid for a player the new york club paid harry frizzi of boston $125,000 for the sensational batsman who last season caused such a furor in the national game by batting out 29 home runs, a new record in long-distance clouding. Colonel Rupert, president of the Yanks, said that he had taken over Ruth's Boston contract, which has two years more to run. This contract calls for a salary of $10,000 a year. Ruth recently announced that he would refuse to play for $10,000 next season, although the Boston club has received no request for a raise in salary. Manager Miller Huggins is now in Los Angeles negotiating with Ruth. It is believed that the Yankee manager will offer him a new contract which will be satisfactory to the Colossus of the bat. President Rupert said yesterday that Ruth would probably play right field for the Yankees. He played in left field for the Red Sox last season and had the highest fielding average among the outfielders, making only two errors during the season. While he is on the Pacific Coast, manager Huggins will also endeavor to sign Duffy Lewis, who will be one of Ruth's companions in the outfield at the polo grounds next season. Home run record in danger. The acquisition of Ruth strengthens the Yankee club in its weakest department. With the added hitting power of Ruth, Bob Shockey, one of the Yankee pitchers, said yesterday the New York club should be a pennant winner next season. For several seasons the Yankees have been experimenting with outfielders, but never have been able to land a consistent hitter. The short right field wall at the polo grounds should prove an easy target for Ruth next season, and, playing 77 games at home, it would not be surprising if Ruth surpassed his home-run record of 29 circuit clouts next summer. Ruth was such a sensation last season that he supplanted the great Ty Cobb as baseball's greatest attraction, and in obtaining the services of Ruth for next season, the New York club made a ten-strike which will be received with the greatest enthusiasm by Manhattan baseball fans. Ruth's crowning batting accomplishment came at the polo grounds last fall, when he hammered one of the longest hits ever seen in Harlem over the right-field grandstand for his twenty-eighth home run smashing the home record of twenty seven made by ed williamson way back in eighteen eighty four the more modern home record up to last season had been held by buck freeman who made twenty five home runs when a member of the washington club in eighteen ninety nine the next best home run hitter of modern times is gavvy Kravath, now manager of the Phillies who made twenty four home runs a few seasons ago Ruth's home run drives were distributed all over the circuit and he is the one player known to the game who hit a home run on every park on the circuit in the same season specializes in long hits ruth's batting feats last season will stand for many years to come unless he betters the record himself with the aid of the short right field under coogan's bluff the record he made last season was a masterpiece of slugging he went up to the bat four hundred thirty two times in one hundred thirty games and produced 139 hits. Of these hits, 75 were for extra bases. Not only did he make 29 home runs, but he also made 34 two-baggers and 12 three-baggers. Ruth's batting average for extra base hits was 657, a mark which probably will not be approached for many years to come. Ruth scored the greatest number of runs in the American League last season, crossing the plate 103 times. Cobb scored only 97 runs last year. Ruth was so dangerous that the American League pitchers were generous with their passes, and the superlative hitter walked 101 times, many of these passes being intentional. Ruth also struck out more than any other batsman in the league, fanning 58 times. He also made three sacrifice hits, and he stole seven bases. Ruth is a native of Baltimore and is 26 years old just in his prime as a baseball player. He was discovered by Jack Dunn, owner of the Baltimore Club, while playing with the baseball team of Mount St. Joseph's, a school which Ruth attended in that city, in 1913. In 1914 Ruth played with the Baltimore team, and up to that time little attention had been paid to his batting. It was as a pitcher that he attracted attention in Baltimore. Boston bought Ruth along with Ernie Shore and some other players in 1914. The price paid for Ruth was said to have been $2,700. Holds World Series Record Ruth was a big success in the Major League from the start. In 1916, when the Red Sox won the pennant, he led the American League pitchers in effectiveness, and in the World Series of 1916 and 1918, Ruth hung up a new World Series pitching record for shutout innings. He pitched 28 consecutive scoreless innings which beat the record of twenty-seven scoreless innings made in World Series games by Christy Mathewson of the Giants. For the past few seasons, Ruth's ambition has been to play regularly. While he was doing only pitching duty with Boston, he was a sensational pinch hitter, and when he played regularly in the outfield last season, he blossomed forth as the most sensational batsman the game has ever known. He was also a great success as a fielder, and last season he made only two errors, and had 230 putouts he also had 26 assists more than any outfielder in the american league this was because of his phenomenal throwing arm his fielding average last season was 9.92 ruth didn't do much pitching last season he pitched 13 games and won 8 and lost 5 manager huggins is expected back in new york at the end of next week with ruth's contract in his inside pocket It is believed that the New York club will not try to hold Ruth to the Boston contract, which he has decided is unsatisfactory. The new contract which the Yankees have offered Ruth is said to be almost double the Boston figure of $10,000 a year. While he is out on the coast interviewing Ruth, Huggins is also getting into line not only Duffy Lewis, but also Bob Musil, the sensational young slugger of the Pacific Coast League, who is regarded by baseball scouts as the minor league find of the year the perfect hitter. Ruth's principle of batting is much the same as the principle of the golfer. He comes back slowly, keeps his eye on the ball, and follows through. His very position at the bat is intimidating to the pitcher. He places his feet in perfect position. He simply cannot step away from the pitch if he wants to. He can step only one way, in. The weight of Ruth's body when he bats is on his left leg. The forward leg is bent slightly at the knee. As he stands facing the pitcher, more of his hips and back are seen by the pitcher than his chest or side. When he starts to swing, his back is half-turned toward the pitcher. He goes as far back as he can reach, never for an instant taking his eye off the ball as it leaves the pitcher's hand. The greatest power in his terrific swing comes when the bat is directly in front of his body, just halfway in the swing. He hits the ball with terrific impact and there is no player in the game whose swing is such a masterpiece of batting technique. End of article
9: Collier's National Weekly, May 5, 1906 The Story of an Eyewitness by Jack London Collier's Special Correspondent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Upon receipt of the first news of the earthquake, Collier's telegraphed to Mr. Jack London, who lives only forty miles from San Francisco, requesting him to go to the scene of the disaster and write the story of what he saw. Mr. London started at once, and he sent the following dramatic description of the tragic events he witnessed in the burning city. The earthquake shook down in San Francisco hundreds of thousands of dollars' worth of walls and chimneys, but the conflagration that followed burned up hundreds of millions of dollars' worth of property. There is no estimating within hundreds of millions the actual damage wrought. NOT IN HISTORY HAS A MODERN IMPERIAL CITY BEEN SO COMPLETELY DESTROYED. SAN FRANCISCO IS GONE. NOTHING REMAINS OF IT BUT MEMORIES AND A FRINGE OF DWELLING HOUSES ON ITS OUTSKIRTS. ITS INDUSTRIAL SECTION IS WIPED OUT. ITS BUSINESS SECTION IS WIPED OUT. ITS SOCIAL AND RESIDENTIAL SECTION IS WIPED OUT. THE FACTORIES AND WAREHOUSES, THE GREAT STORES AND NEWSPAPER BUILDINGS, the hotels and the palaces of the nabobs are all gone remains only the fringe of dwelling-houses on the outskirts of what was once san francisco within an hour after the earthquake shock the smoke of san francisco's burning was a lurid tower visible a hundred miles away and for three days and nights this lurid tower swayed in the sky reddening the sun darkening the day "'and filling the land with smoke. "'On Wednesday morning at a quarter past five came the earthquake. "'A minute later the flames were leaping upward. "'In a dozen different quarters south of Market Street, "'in the working-class ghetto and in the factories, fire started. "'There was no opposing the flames. "'There was no organization, no communication. "'All the cunning adjustments of a twentieth-century city "'had been smashed by the earthquake.' THE STREETS WERE HUMPED INTO RIDGES AND DEPRESSIONS, AND PILED WITH THE DEBRIS OF FALLEN WALLS. THE STEEL RAILS WERE TWISTED INTO PERPENDICULAR AND HORIZONTAL ANGLES. THE TELEPHONE AND TELEGRAPH SYSTEMS WERE DISRUPTED, AND THE GREAT WATER MAINS HAD BURST. ALL THE shrewd CONTRIVANCES AND SAFEGUARDS OF MAN HAD BEEN THROWN OUT OF GEAR BY THIRTY SECONDS TWITCHING OF THE EARTH CREST. THE FIRE MADE ITS OWN DRAFT. BY WEDNESDAY AFTERNOON, INSIDE OF TWELVE HOURS, HALF THE HEART OF THE CITY WAS GONE. AT THAT TIME I WATCHED THE VAST CONFLAGRATION FROM OUT ON THE BAY. IT WAS DEAD CALM. NOT A FLICKER OF WIND STIRRED. YET FROM EVERY SIDE WIND WAS POURING IN UPON THE CITY. EAST, WEST, NORTH, AND SOUTH. STRONG WINDS WERE BLOWING UPON THE DOOMED CITY. THE HEATED AIR RISING MADE AN ENORMOUS SUCK. Thus did the fire of itself build its own colossal chimney through the atmosphere. Day and night this dead calm continued, and yet, near to the flames, the wind was often half a gale, so mighty was the suck. Wednesday night saw the destruction of the very heart of the city. Dynamite was lavishly used, and many of San Francisco's proudest structures were crumbled by man himself into ruins but there was no withstanding the onrush of the flames. Time and again successful stands were made by the firefighters, and every time the flames flanked around on either side or came up from the rear and turned to defeat the hard-won victory. An enumeration of the buildings destroyed would be a directory of San Francisco. An enumeration of the buildings undestroyed would be a line and several addresses. An enumeration of the deeds of heroism would stock a library and bankrupt the Carnegie Medal Fund. An enumeration of the dead will never be made. All vestiges of them were destroyed by the flames. The number of the victims of the earthquake will never be known. South of Market Street, where the loss of life was particularly heavy, was the first to catch fire. Remarkable as it may seem, WEDNESDAY NIGHT WHILE THE WHOLE CITY CRASHED AND ROARED INTO RUIN WAS A QUIET NIGHT. THERE WERE NO CROWDS. THERE WAS NO SHOUTING AND YELLING. THERE WAS NO HYSTERIA, NO DISORDER. I PASSED WEDNESDAY NIGHT IN THE PATH OF THE ADVANCING FLAMES, AND IN ALL THOSE TERRIBLE HOURS I SAW NOT ONE WOMAN WHO WEPT, NOT ONE MAN WHO WAS EXCITED, NOT ONE PERSON WHO WAS IN THE slightest DEGREE PANIC-STRICKEN. Before the flames, throughout the night, fled tens of thousands of homeless ones. Some were wrapped in blankets. Others carried bundles of bedding and dear household treasures. Sometimes a whole family was harnessed to a carriage or delivery wagon that was weighted down with their possessions. Baby buggies, toy wagons, and go-carts were used as trucks, while every other person was dragging a trunk. Yet everybody was gracious, the most perfect courtesy obtained. Never in all San Francisco's history were her people so kind and courteous as on this night of terror. A CARAVAN OF TRUNKS All night these tens of thousands fled before the flames. Many of them, the poor people from the labor ghetto, had fled all day as well. They had left their homes burdened with possessions, Now and again they lightened up, flinging out upon the street clothing and treasures they had dragged for miles. They held on longest to their trunks, and over these trunks many a strong man broke his heart that night. The hills of San Francisco are steep, and up these hills, mile after mile, were the trunks dragged. Everywhere were trunks with across them lying their exhausted owners, men and women, Before the march of the flames were flung picket lines of soldiers, and a block at a time, as the flames advanced, these pickets retreated. One of their tasks was to keep the trunk-pullers moving. The exhausted creatures, stirred on by the menace of bayonets, would arise and struggle up the steep pavements, pausing from weakness every five or ten feet. Often after surmounting a heartbreaking hill, They would find another wall of flame advancing upon them at right angles, and be compelled to change anew the line of their retreat. In the end, completely played out, after toiling for a dozen hours like giants, thousands of them were compelled to abandon their trunks. Here the shopkeepers and soft members of the middle class were at a disadvantage, but the working men dug holes in vacant lots and backyards and buried their trunks. THE DOOMED CITY At nine o'clock Wednesday evening, I walked down through the very heart of the city. I walked through miles and miles of magnificent buildings and towering skyscrapers. Here was no fire. All was in perfect order. The police patrolled the streets. Every building had its watchman at the door. And yet it was doomed, all of it. There was no water. The dynamite was giving out and at right angles two different conflagrations were sweeping down upon it. At one o'clock in the morning, I walked down through the same section. Everything still stood intact. There was no fire, and yet there was a change. A rain of ashes was falling. The watchmen at the doors were gone. The police had been withdrawn. There were no firemen, no fire engines, no men fighting with dynamite the district had been absolutely abandoned. I stood at the corner of Kearney and Market in the very innermost heart of San Francisco. Kearney Street was deserted. Half a dozen blocks away it was burning on both sides. The street was a wall of flame, and against this wall of flame, silhouetted sharply, were two United States cavalrymen sitting their horses, calmly watching. That was all. Not another person was in sight. In the intact heart of the city, two troopers sat their horses and watched. SPREAD OF THE conflagration. Surrender was complete. There was no water. The sewers had long since been pumped dry. There was no dynamite. Another fire had broken out further uptown, and now from three sides conflagrations were sweeping down. The fourth side had been burned earlier in the day. In that direction stood the tottering walls of the examiner building and the burned-out call building, the smoldering ruins of the grand hotel, and the gutted, devastated, dynamited palace hotel. The following will illustrate the sweep of the flames and the inability of men to calculate their spread. At eight o'clock Wednesday evening I passed through Union Square, It was packed with refugees. Thousands of them had gone to bed on the grass. Government tents had been set up, supper was being cooked, and the refugees were lining up for free meals. At half-past one in the morning, three sides of Union Square were in flames. The fourth side, where stood the great St. Francis Hotel, was still holding out. An hour later, ignited from top and sides, the St. Francis was flaming heavenward. Union Square, heaped high with mountains of trunks, was deserted. Troops, refugees, and all had retreated. A FORTUNE FOR A HORSE It was at Union Square that I saw a man offering a thousand dollars for a team of horses. He was in charge of a truck piled high with trunks from some hotel. It had been hauled here into what was considered safety, and the horses had been taken out. The flames were on three sides of the square, and there were no horses. Also at this time, standing beside the truck, I urged a man to seek safety in flight. He was all but hemmed in by several conflagrations. He was an old man, and he was on crutches, said he. "'Today is my birthday.' LAST NIGHT I WAS WORTH THIRTY THOUSAND DOLLARS. I BOUGHT FIVE BOTTLES OF WINE, SOME DELICATE FISH, AND OTHER THINGS FOR MY BIRTHDAY DINNER. I HAVE HAD NO DINNER, AND ALL I OWN ARE THESE CRUTCHES. I CONVINCED HIM OF HIS DANGER, AND STARTED HIM LIMPING ON HIS WAY. AN HOUR LATER, FROM A DISTANCE, I SAW THE truckload OF TRUNKS BURNING MERRILY IN THE MIDDLE OF THE STREET. On Thursday morning, at a quarter past five, just twenty-four hours after the earthquake, I sat on the steps of a small residence on Nob Hill. With me sat Japanese, Italians, Chinese, and Negroes, a bit of the cosmopolitan flotsam of the wreck of the city. All about were the palaces of the Nabob pioneers of forty-nine. To the east and south, at right angles, were advancing two mighty walls of flame, I WENT INSIDE WITH THE OWNER OF THE HOUSE ON THE STEPS OF WHICH I SAT. HE WAS COOL AND CHEERFUL AND HOSPITABLE. YESTERDAY MORNING, HE SAID, I WAS WORTH SIX HUNDRED THOUSAND DOLLARS. THIS MORNING THIS HOUSE IS ALL I HAVE LEFT. IT WILL GO IN FIFTEEN MINUTES. HE POINTED TO A LARGE CABINET. THAT IS MY WIFE'S COLLECTION OF CHINA. THIS RUG UPON WHICH WE STAND IS A PRESENT. It cost fifteen hundred dollars. Try that piano. Listen to its tone. There are few like it. There are no horses. The flames will be here in fifteen minutes. Outside the old Mark Hopkins residence, a palace was just catching fire. The troops were falling back and driving the refugees before them. From every side came the roaring of flames, the crashing of walls, and the detonations of dynamite. The dawn of the second day. I passed out of the house. Day was trying to dawn through the smoke pall. A sickly light was creeping over the face of things. Once only the sun broke through the smoke pall, blood red, and showing quarter its usual size. The smoke pall itself, viewed from beneath, was a rose color that pulsed and fluttered with lavender shades then it turned to mauve and yellow and dun there was no sun and so dawned the second day on stricken san francisco an hour later i was creeping past the shattered dome of the city hall then it there was no better exhibit of the destructive force of the earthquake most of the stone had been shaken from the great dome leaving standing the naked framework of steel. Market Street was piled high with the wreckage, and across the wreckage lay the overthrown pillars of the city hall, shattered into short crosswise sections. This section of the city, with the exception of the mint and the post-office, was already a waste of smoking ruins. Here and there, through the smoke, creeping warily under the shadows of tottering walls, "'emerged occasional men and women. "'It was like the meeting of the handful of survivors "'after the day of the end of the world. Thieves Slaughtered and Roasted "'On Mission Street lay a dozen steers "'in a neat row stretching across the street "'just as they had been struck down "'by the flying ruins of the earthquake. "'The fire had passed through afterward and roasted them.' The human dead had been carried away before the fire came. At another place on Mission Street, I saw a milk wagon. A steel telegraph pole had smashed down sheer through the driver's seat and crushed the front wheels. The milk cans lay scattered around. All day Thursday and all Thursday night, all day Friday and Friday night, the flames still raged on. Friday night saw the flames finally conquered though not until Russian Hill and Telegraph Hill had been swept and three-quarters of a mile of wharves and docks had been licked up. THE LAST STAND The great stand of the firefighters was made Thursday night on Van Ness Avenue. Had they failed here, the comparatively few remaining houses of the city would have been swept. Here were the magnificent residences of the second generation of San Francisco nabobs, and these, in a solid zone, were dynamited down across the path of the fire. Here and there the flames leaped the zone, but these fires were beaten out, principally by the use of wet blankets and rugs. San Francisco, at the present time, is like the crater of a volcano, around which are camped tens of thousands of refugees, At the Presidio alone are at least 20,000. All the surrounding cities and towns are jammed with the homeless ones, where they are being cared for by the relief committees. The refugees were carried free by the railroads to any point they wished to go, and it is estimated that over 100,000 people have left the peninsula on which San Francisco stood. The government has the situation in hand, and thanks to the immediate relief given by the whole united states there is not the slightest possibility of a famine the bankers and businessmen have already set about making preparations to rebuild san francisco end of the story of an eyewitness by jack london
10: Winter Sunshine by John Burroughs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Winter Sunshine by John Burroughs. An American resident in England is reported as saying that the English have an atmosphere but no climate. The reverse of this remark would apply pretty accurately to our own case. We certainly have a climate, a two-edged one, that cuts both ways, threatening us with sunstroke on the one hand and with froststroke on the other. But we have no atmosphere to speak of in New York and New England, except now and then during the dog days or the fitful and uncertain Indian summer. An atmosphere, the quality of tone and mellowness in the near distance, is the product of a more humid climate hence as we go south from new york the atmospheric effects become more rich and varied until on reaching the potomac you find an atmosphere as well as a climate the latter is still on the vehement american scale full of sharp and violent changes and contrasts baking and blistering in summer and nipping and blighting in winter but the spaces are not so purged and bare The horizon wall does not so often have the appearance of having just been washed and scrubbed down. There is more depth and visibility to the open air, a stronger infusion of the Indian summer element throughout the year, than is found further north. The days are softer and more brooding, and the nights more enchanting. It is here that Walt Whitman saw the full moon. POUR DOWN NIGHT'S NIMBUS FLOODS as one may see her during the fall from October to May. There is more haze and vapour in the atmosphere during that period, and every particle seems to collect and hold the pure radiance until the world swims with the lunar outpouring. Is not the full moon always on the side of fair weather? I think it is Sir William Herschel who says her influence tends to dispel the clouds. Certain it is her beauty that is seldom lost or even veiled in this southern or semi-southern clime floods of the yellow gold of the gorgeous indolent sinking sun burning expanding the air a description that would not apply with the same force further north where the air seems thinner and less capable of absorbing and holding the sunlight indeed the opulence and splendour of our climate at least the climate of the atlantic seaboard cannot be fully appreciated by the dweller north of the thirty ninth parallel It seems as if I have never seen but a second-rate article of sunlight or moonlight until I had taken up my abode in the national capital. It may be, perhaps, because we have such splendid specimens of both at the period of the year when one values such things highest, namely in the fall and winter and early spring. Sunlight is good any time, but a bright, evenly-tempered day is certainly more engrossing to the attention in the winter than in summer and such days seems the rule and not the exception in the washington winter the deep snows keep to the north the heavy rains to the south leaving a blue space central over the border states and there is not one of the winter months but wears this blue zone as a girdle i am not thinking especially of the indian summer that charming but uncertain second youth of the new england year but of regularly recurring lucid intervals in the weather system of virginia fall and winter when the best our climate is capable of stand revealed southern days with northern blood in their veins exhilarating elastic full of action the hyperborean oxygen of the north tempered by the dazzling sun of the south a little bitter in winter to all travellers but the pedestrian to him sweet and warming but in autumn a vintage that intoxicates all lovers of the open air. It is impossible not to dilate and expand under such skies. One breathes deeply and steps profoundly, and if he have any of the eagle nature in him, it comes to the surface then. There is a sense of altitude above these dazzling November and December days of mountaintops and pure ether. The earth, in passing through the fire of summer, seems to have lost all its dross, and life all its impediments. But what does not the dweller in the national capital endure in reaching these days? Think of the agonies of the heated term, the ragings of the dog-star, the purgatory of heat and dust, of baking, blistering pavements, of cracked and powdered fields, of dead, stifling night air, from which every tonic and antiseptic quality seems eliminated leaving a residuum of sultry malaria and all diffusing privy and sewer gases that lasts from the first of July to near the middle of September. But when October is reached, the memory of these things is far off, and the glory of the days is perpetual surprise. I sally out in the morning with the ostensible purpose of gathering chestnuts or autumn leaves or persimmons, or exploring some run or branch. It is, say, the last of October or the first of November. The air is not balmy, but tart and pungent, like the flavour of the red-cheeked apples by the roadside. In the sky, not a cloud, not a speck, a vast dome of blue ether, lightly suspended above the world. The woods are heaped with colour, like a painter's palette, great splashes of red and orange and gold. The ponds and streams bear upon their bosoms, leaves of all tints from the deep maroon of the oak to the pale yellow of the chestnut in the glens and nooks it is so still that the chirp of a solitary cricket is noticeable the red berries of the dogwood and spice-bush and other shrubs shine in the sun like rubies and coral the crows fly high above the earth as they do only on such days forms of ebony floating across the azure and the buzzards look like kingly birds sailing round and round. Or it may be later in the season, well into December. The days are equally bright, but a little more rugged. The mornings are ushered in by an immense spectrum, thrown upon the eastern sky. A broad bar of red and orange lies along the low horizon, surmounted by an expanse of colour, in which green struggles with yellow and blue, with green half the way to the zenith. By and by the red and orange spread upward and grow dim, the spectrum fades, and the sky becomes suffused with yellow-white light, and in a moment the fiery scintillations of the sun begin to break across the Maryland hills. Then before long the mists and vapours uprise like the breath of a giant army, and for an hour or two one is reminded of a November morning in England. But by mid-forenoon the only trace of the obscurity that remains is a slight haze, and the day is indeed a summons and a challenge to come forth. If the October days were a cordial, like the sub-acids of a fruit, these are the tonic, like the wine of iron. Drink deep, or be careful how you taste this December vintage. The first sip may chill, but a full draught warms and invigorates. No loitering by the brooks, or in the woods now but spirited, rugged walking along the public highway. The sunbeams are welcome now. They seem like pure electricity, like a friendly and recuperating lightning. Are we led to think electricity abounds only in the summer when we see storm clouds, as it were, the veins and ore beds of it? I imagine it is equally abundant in winter, and more equable and better tempered. Whoever breasted a snowstorm without being excited and exhilarated, as if this meteor had come charged with latent aurora of the north? As doubtless it has. It is like being pelted with sparks from a battery. Behold the frostwork on the pane, the wild, fantastic linings and etchings. Can there be any doubt but this subtle agent has been here? Where is it not? It is the life of the crystal, the artifact of the flake the fire of the frost, the soul of the sunbeam. This crisp winter air is full of it. When I come in at night, after an all-day tramp, I am charged like a laden jar. My hair crackles and snaps, beneath the comb like a cat's back, and a strange new glow diffuses itself through my system. It is a spur that one feels at this season more than any other. How nimbly you step forth, The woods roar, the waters shine, and the hills look invitingly near. You do not miss the flowers and the songsters, or wish the trees or the fields any different, or the heavens any nearer. Every object pleases—a rail fence running athwart the hills, now in sunshine and now in shadow. How the eye lingers upon it, or the straight, light-grey trunks of the trees, where the woods have recently been laid open by a road or clearing how curious they look, and as if surprised in undress. Next year they will begin to shoot out branches and make themselves a screen. Or the farm scenes, the winter barnyards littered with husks and straw, the rough-coated horses, the cattle sunning themselves, or walking down to the spring to drink, the domestic fowls moving about. There is a touch of sweet, homely life in these things that the winter sun enhances and brings out." Every sign of life is welcome at this season. I love to hear the dogs bark, hens cackle, and boys shout. One has no privacy with nature now, and does not wish to seek her in nooks and hidden ways. She is not at home if he goes there. Her house is shut up, and her hearth cold. Only the sun and sky, and perchance the waters, wear the old look, and to-day we will make love to them, and they shall abundantly return it even the crows and buzzards draw the eye fondly the national capital is a great place for buzzards and i make the remark in no double or allegorical sense either for the buzzards i mean are black and harmless as doves though perhaps hardly dove-like in their tastes my vulture is also a bird of leisure and sails through the ether on long flexible pinions as if that were the one delight of his life some birds have wings others have pinions the buzzard enjoys this latter distinction there is something in the sound of the word that suggests that easy dignified undulatory movement he does not propel himself along by sheer force of muscle after the plebeian fashion of the crow for instance but progresses by a kind of royal indirection that puzzles the eye Even on a windy winter day he rides the vast aerial billows as placidly as ever, rising and falling as he comes up towards you, carving his way through the resisting currents by a slight oscillation to the right and left, but never once beating the air openly. This superabundance of wing-power is very unequally distributed among the feathered races, the hawks and vultures having by far the greater share of it they cannot command the most speed but their apparatus seems the most delicate and consummate apparently a fine play of muscle a subtle shifting of the power along the outstretched wings a perpetual loss and a perpetual recovery of the equipoise sustains them and bears them along with them flying is a luxury a fine art not merely a quicker and safer means of transit from one point to another but a gift so free and spontaneous that work becomes leisure and movement rest. They are not so much going somewhere, from this perch or that, as they are abandoning themselves to the mere pleasure of riding upon the air. And it is beneath such grace and high-bred leisure that nature hides in her creatures the occupation of scavenger and carrion-eater. But the worst thing about the buzzard is his silence. The crow caws, the hawk screams, the eagle barks, but the buzzard says not a word. So far as I have observed, he has no vocal powers whatever. Nature dare not trust him to speak. In his case she preserves discreet silence. The crow may not have the sweet voice which the fox in his flattery attributed to him, but he has a good, strong, native speech nevertheless. How much character there is in it! How much thrift and independence! Of course his plumage is firm, his colour decided, his wit quick. He understands you at once and tells you so. So does the hawk, by his scornful, defiant whirr. Hardy, happy outlaws, the crows, how I love them, alert, social, republican, always able to look out for himself, not afraid of the cold and the snow, fishing when flesh is scarce, and stealing when other resources fail the crow is a character i would not willingly miss from the landscape i love to see his track in the snow or the mud and his graceful pedestrianism about the brown fields he is no interloper but has the air and manner of being thoroughly at home and in the right possession of the land he is no sentimentalist like some of the plaining disconsolate song-birds but apparently is always in good health and good spirits No matter who is sick, or dejected, or unsatisfied, or what the weather is, or what the price of corn, the crow is well and finds life sweet. He is the dusky embodiment of worldly wisdom and prudence. Then he is one of nature's self-appointed constables, and greatly magnifies his office. He would fain arrest every hawk or owl, or grimalkin that ventures abroad. I have known a posse of them to beset the fox and cry thief till Reynard hid himself for shame. Do I say the fox flattered the crow when he told him that he had a sweet voice? Yet one of the most musical sounds in nature proceeds from the crow. All the crow tribe, from the blue-jay up, are capable of certain low, ventriloquial notes that have peculiar cadence and charm. I often hear the crow indulging in his in winter, and am reminded of the sound of the dulcimer The bird stretches up and exerts himself like a cock in the act of crowing, and gives forth a peculiarly clear, vitreous sound that is sure to arrest and reward your attention. This is no doubt the song the fox begged to be favoured with, as in delivering it the crow must inevitably let drop the piece of meat. The crow in his purity, I believe, is seen and heard only in the north, before you reach the Potomac there is an infusion of a weaker element, the fish-crow, whose helpless feminine call contrasts strongly with the hearty masculine caw of the original Simon. In passing from crows to colored men, I hope I am not guilty of any disrespect towards the latter. In my walks about Washington, both winter and summer, colored men are about the only pedestrians I meet, and I meet them everywhere, in the fields and in the woods and in the public road, "'swinging along with that peculiar rambling elastic gait, "'taking advantage of the shortcuts "'and treading the country with paths and byways. "'I doubt if the colored man can compete "'with his white brother as a walker. "'His foot is too flat and the calves of his legs too small, "'but he is certainly the most picturesque traveler "'to be seen on the road. "'He bends his knees more than the white man "'and oscillates more to and fro or from side to side.' The imaginary line which his head describes is full of deep and long undulations. Even the boys and young men sway as if bearing a burden. Along the fences and by the woods I came upon their snares, deadfalls, and rude box-traps. The freedman is a successful trapper and hunter, and has by nature an insight into these things. I frequently see him in the market or on his way thither, with a tame possum clinging timidly to his shoulders, or a young coon or fox led by a chain. Indeed, the colored man behaves precisely like the rude, unsophisticated peasant that he is, and there is fully as much virtue in him, using the word in its true sense, as in the white peasant. Indeed, much more than in the poor whites who grew up by his side while there is often a benignity and a depth of human experience and sympathy about some of these dark faces that comes home to one like the best one sees in art or reads in books one touch of nature makes all the world akin and there is certainly a touch of nature about the colored man indeed i had almost said of the anglo-saxon nature they have the quaintness and homeliness of this simple english stock i seem to see my grandfather and grandmother in the ways and doings of these old uncles and aunties. Indeed, the lesson comes nearer home than even that, for I seem to see myself in them, and, what is more, I see that they see themselves in me, and that neither party has much to boast of. The negro is a plastic human creature, and is thoroughly domesticated and thoroughly anglicized. The same cannot be said of the Indian, for instance, between whom and us there can never exist any fellowship, any community of feeling or interest or is there any doubt but the chinaman will always remain to us the same impenetrable mystery he has been from the first but there is no mystery about the negro and he touches the anglo-saxon at more points than the latter is always willing to own taking as kindly and naturally to all his customs and usages yea to all his prejudices and superstitions as if to the manner born The coloured population in very many respects occupies the same position as that occupied by our rural populations a generation or two ago, seeing signs and wonders, haunted by the fears of ghosts and hobgoblins, believing in witchcraft, charms, the evil eye, etc. In religious matters also, they are on the same level, and about the only genuine shouting Methodists that remain are to be found in the coloured churches. Indeed, I fear the negro tries to ignore or forget himself as far as possible, and that he would deem it felicity enough to play second fiddle to the white man all his days. He liked his master, but he likes the Yankee better, not because he regards him as his deliverer, but mainly because the two-handed thrift of the northerner. His varied and wonderful ability completely captivates the imagination of the black man, just learning to shift for himself." How far he is caught, or is capable of being imbued with the Yankee spirit of enterprise and industry, remains to be seen. In some things he has already shown himself an apt scholar. I notice, for instance, that he is about as industrious an office-seeker as the most patriotic among us, and that he learns with amazing ease and rapidity all the arts and wiles of the politicians he is versed in parades, mass-meetings, caucuses, and will soon shine on the stump. I observe also that he is not far behind us in the observance of the fashions, and that he is as good a church-goer, theatre-goer, and pleasure-seeker generally as his means will allow. As a boot or newsboy, he is adept in all the tricks of the trade, and as a fast young man about town, among his kind he is worthy his white prototype the swagger the impertinent look the coarse remark the loud laugh are all in the best style as a lounger and starer also on the street corners of a sunday afternoon he has taken his degree on the other hand i know cases among our coloured brethren plenty of them of consciousness and well-directed effort and industry in the worthiest fields in agriculture and trade in the mechanic arts, that show the colored man has in him all the best rudiments of a citizen of the States. Lest my winter sunshine appear to have too many dark rays in it, buzzards, crows, and colored men, I hasten to add the brown and neutral tints, and maybe a red ray can be extracted from some of these hard, smooth, sharp-gridded roads that radiate from the national capital. Leading out of Washington— there are several good roads that invite the pedestrian. There is the road that leads west or northwest from Georgetown, the Tennelly Road, the very sight of which, on a sharp, lustrous winter Sunday, makes the feet tingle. Where it cuts through a hill or a high knoll, it is so red it fairly glows in the sunlight. I'll warrant you will kindle, and your own color will mount, if you resign yourself to it. It will conduct you, to the wild and rocky scenery of the upper Potomac, to Great Falls, and on to Harpers Ferry, if your carriage holds out. Then there is the road that leads north over Meridian Hill, across Pinny Branch, and on through the wood of Crystal Springs to Fort Stevens, and so into Maryland. This is the proper route for an excursion in the spring to gather wild flowers, or in the fall for a netting expedition. As it lays open, some noble woods and a great variety of charming scenery, or for amusing moonlight saunter, say in December, when the enchantress has folded and folded the world in her web. It is by all means the course to take. Your staff rings on the hard ground, the road, a misty white belt, gleams and vanishes before you. The woods are cavernous and still, the fields lie in a lunar trance and you will yourself return fairly mesmerized by the beauty of the scene. Or you can bend your steps eastward over the eastern branch, up Good Hope Hill, and on till you strike the Marlborough Pike, as a trio of us did that cold February Sunday we walked from Washington to Pumpkin Town and back. A short sketch of this pilgrimage is a fair sample of these winter walks. The delight I experienced in making this new acquisition to my geography was of itself sufficient to atone for any aches or weariness I may have felt. The mere fact that one may walk from Washington to Pumpkin Town was a discovery I had been all these years in making. I had walked to Sligo and to Northwest Branch, and had made the falls of the Potomac in a circuitous route of ten miles, coming suddenly upon the river in one of its wildest passes. But I little dreamed all the while that there, in a wrinkle or shall I say furrow of the Maryland hills almost visible from the outlook of the bronze squaw on the dome of the capitol and just around the head of oxen run lay pumpkin town the day was cold but the sun was bright and the foot took hold of those dark dry gritty Maryland roads with the keenest relish how the levels of the laurel glistened the distant oak woods suggested gray-blue smoke while the recesses of the pines looked like the lair of night. Beyond the district limits we struck the Marlborough Pike, which, round and hard and white, held squarely to the east and was visible a mile ahead. Its friction brought up the temperature amazingly and spurred the pedestrians into their best time. As I trudged along, Thoreau's lines came naturally to mind. When the spring stirs my blood with the instinct of travel— I can get enough gravel on the old Marlborough Road. Cold as the day was, many degrees below freezing, I heard and saw bluebirds, and as we passed along, every sheltered tangle and overgrown field or lane swarmed with snowbirds or sparrows. The latter mainly Canada or tree sparrows, with a sprinkling of the song, and maybe one or two other varieties. The birds are all social and gregarious in winter, and seem drawn together by common instinct. Where you find one, you will not only find others of the same kind, but also several different kinds. The regular winter residents go in little bands, like a well-organized pioneer corps, the jays and woodpeckers in advance doing the heavier work, the nuthatches next, more lightly armed, and the creepers and kinglets, with their slender beaks and microscopic eyes, last of all footnote. It seems to me this is a borrowed observation, but I do not know whom to credit it. Now and then among the grey and brown tints there was a dash of scarlet, the cardinal Grosbeak, whose presence was sufficient to enliven any scene. In the leafless trees, as a ray of sunshine fell upon him, he was visible a long way off, glowing like a crimson spar, the only bit of colour in the whole landscape maryland is here rather a level unpicturesque country the gaze of the traveller bounded at no great distance by oak woods with here and there a dark line of pine we saw few travellers passed a ragged squad or two of coloured boys and girls and met some coloured women on their way to or from church perhaps never asked a coloured person at least the crude rustic specimens any question that involves a memory of names, or any arbitrary signs, you will rarely get a satisfactory answer. If you could speak to them in their own dialect, or touch the right spring in their minds, you would no doubt get the desired information. They are as local in their notions and habits as the animals, and go on much the same principles as no doubt we all do, more or less. I saw a colored boy come into a public office one day and ask to see a man with red hair. The name was utterly gone from him. The man had red Whiskers, which was as near as he had come to the mark. Ask your washerwoman what street she lives on, or where such a one has moved to, and the chances are that she cannot tell you, except that it is a right smart distance this way or that, or near Mr. So-and-so, or by such-and-such a place, describing some local feature. I love to amuse myself when walking through the market by asking the old aunties and the young aunties, too, the names of their various yarbs. It seems as if they must trip on the simplest names. Bloodroot they generally call grubroot. Trailing arbutus goes by the name of trawling arbutus, training arbuty flower, and ground ivory. In Virginia they call woodchucks munucks on entering pumpkin-town a cluster of five or six small whitewashed block-houses towing squarely on the highway the only inhabitant we saw was a small boy who was as frank and simple as if he had lived on pumpkins and marrow-squashes all his days half a mile further on we turned to the right into a characteristic southern road away entirely unkempt and wandering free as the wind now fading out into a broad field now contracting into a narrow track between hedges. Anon, roaming with delightful abandon through swamps and woods, asking no leave and keeping no bounds. About two o'clock we stopped in an opening in a pine wood and ate our lunch. We had the good fortune to hit upon a charming place. A woodchopper had been there, and let in the sunlight full and strong." and the white chips, the newly piled wood, and the mounds of green boughs were welcome features, and helped also to keep off the wind that would creep through under the pines. The ground was soft and dry, with a carpet an inch thick of pine needles, and with a fire less for warmth than to make the picture complete, we ate our bread and beans with the keenest satisfaction, and with a relish that only the open air can give. A fire, of course, An encampment in the woods at this season, without a fire, would be like leaving Hamlet out of the play. A smoke is your standard, your flag. It defines and locates your camp at once. You are an interloper until you have made a fire. Then you take possession. Then the trees and rocks seem to look upon you more kindly, and you look more kindly upon them. As one opens his budget, so he opens his heart by a fire. Already something has gone out from you, and comes back as a faint reminiscence and home-feeling in the air and place. One looks out upon the crow or the buzzard that sails by as from his own fireside. It is not that I am a wanderer and a stranger now. It is the crow and the buzzard. The chickadees were silent at first, but now they approach by little journeys, as if to make our acquaintance. The nuthatches also cry— "'Yank, yank!' in no inhospitable tones. "'And those purple finches there in the cedars, "'are they not stealing our berries?' "'How one lingers about a fire under such circumstances! "'Loath to leave it! "'Poking up the sticks, throwing in the burnt ends, "'adding another branch and yet another, "'and looking back as he turns to go "'to catch one more glimpse of the smoke "'going up through the trees.' I reckon it is some remnant of the primitive man which we all carry about with us. He has not forgotten his wild, free life, his arboreal habitations, and the sweet bitter times he had in those long-gone ages. With me he wakes up directly at the smell of smoke, of burning branches in the open air, and all his old love of fire and his dependence upon it in the camp or the cave come freshly to mind.' On resuming our march, we filed off along a charming wood path, a regular little tunnel through the dense pines, carpeted with silence, and allowing us to look nearly the whole length of it through its soft green twilight, out into the open sunshine of the fields beyond. A pine wood in Maryland, or in Virginia, is quite a different thing from a pine wood in Maine or Minnesota—the difference, in fact, between yellow pine and white— the former as it grows hereabout is short and scrubby with branches nearly to the ground and looks like the dwindling remnant of a greater race beyond the woods the path led us by a coloured man's habitation a little low-framed house on a knoll surrounded by the quaint devices and rude makeshifts of these quaint and rude people a few poles stuck in the ground clapboard with cedar boughs and corn-stalks, and supporting a roof of the same, gave shelter to a rickety one-horse wagon and some farm implements. Near this there was a large, compact tent, made entirely of corn-stalks, with, for door, a bundle of the same, in the dry, warm, nest-like interior of which the husking of the corn-crop seemed to have taken place. A few rods further on, we passed through another humble dooryard, musical with dogs and dusky with children. We crossed here the outlying fields of a large, thrifty, well-kept-looking farm, with a showy, highly ornamental frame-house in the centre. There was even a park, with deer, and among the gaily painted outbuildings I noticed a fancy dove with an immense flock of doves circling about it. Some whisky-dealer from the city, we were told, trying to take the poison out of his money by agriculture. We next passed through some woods when we emerged into a broad, sunlit, fertile-looking valley called Oxen Run. We stooped down and drank of its clear, white-pebbled stream in the veritable spot, I suspect, where the oxen do. There were clouds of birds here on the warm slopes, with the usual sprinkling along the bushy margin of the stream of scarlet grosbeaks." The valley of Oxen Run has many good-looking farms, with old picturesque houses, and loose rambling barns, such as artists love to put into pictures. But it is a little awkward to go east. It always seems left-handed. I think this is the feeling of all walkers, and that Thoreau's experience in this respect was not singular. The great magnet is the sun, and we follow him, I notice that people lost in the woods work to the westward. When one comes out of his house and asks himself, "'Which way shall I walk?' and looks up and down and around for a sign or a token, does he not, nine times out of ten, turn to the west? He inclines his way as surely as the willow wand bends towards the water. There is something more genial and friendly in this direction. Occasionally in winter... I experience a southern inclination, and cross long bridge and rendezvous for the day in some old earthwork on the Virginia hills. The roads are not so inviting in this direction, but the line of old forts with rabbits burrowing in the bomb-proofs, and a magazine or officers' quarters, turned into a cow-stable by colored squatters, form an interesting feature. But whichever way I go, I am glad I came." All roads lead up to the Jerusalem the walker seeks. There is everywhere the vigorous and masculine winter air, and the impalpable sustenance the mind draws from all natural forms. End of Winter Sunshine